You're listening to As Read By Me, the podcast where writers read and readers listen. Greetings, and welcome to our second annual Reader's Roundup episode. I'm Dave Stiles, and today we're presenting all of our season two stories back to back in one marathon, three and a half hour episode. It's been a terrific year with so many great stories and several new contributors. I thank you all for sharing your work with us. And now let's get to it. I present to you the As Read By Me Season 2 Reader's Roundup. Hi, my name is Joe Murphy. This is Spotter, an excerpt from a forthcoming novel, As Read By Me. The youngest of them was hardly eight years old and small for his age, too, his arms and legs all twiggy. Little Guy stood about half height with his brothers, so both of them brothers were always putting their elbows on his crown, joking on him. Then he'd dodge out, pissed off and buzzing with anger. As much as they played him, though, all them ran like a pack. Den and Frank, those were his brothers. Leon and Ceylon and him. Him, that was Ray, the youngest, the one I started telling about. Leon and Ceylon were the twins, boy and girl, the ones who lived down the hall. They still do. Live down the hall, I mean. The twins' folks had all grown up with the boys together. At least their dads all did, back when, before both men were gone or killed or disappeared. So the twins were family too, far as it mattered. Just they lived in another spot. The walls were thin anyhow. Besides, anymore, back then, Den spent most of the time with his girl downstairs. So if believing the definition of family was them all sharing a tiny space, Leon and Ceylon were closer. Den's girl May was on the ground floor besides, and that was some 14 floors below. It was China, basically, or more likely Antarctica if what Frank said about May all the time was true. What their mother said about the girl wasn't suitable for repeat. I was there too, with all of them, but I don't play much into it in this, save a few choice stories early on. We were just kids anyway. I wish I did, though, play a role more. At least in this, I think. But I was bedstuck by then, both ankles broken from that time I tossed myself alleywise from a height running from patrol or the cops. Some said four stories, but I always say five, even now. Unlike the others, I wasn't family, at least not yet. Despite my living an apartment above with my grandma, with but a ceiling and floor between us, but I decided I was going to love Lucy long before, and she was Frank and Dan and Ray's sister. I was 13 then, when I decided that certainly, and she was freshly 12. But I saw the impending beauty in her face, like a storm coming, and I'd known, I think, since I was but five. Anyhow, we'd be family once. Healing then, I still listened in when they were down there talking about what was the plan. Yeah, those vents couldn't thaw, but they sure carried sound, and my bed was set up right there above Frank's room. Far as us kids cared, that was headquarters. Sometimes I'd yell my two dimes down there and they'd just crack all up like I was the voice of God booming, only one God overly concerned if Lucy was home all the time. So I heard the ones that eventually went sour. The one that got Den picked up, and when he got out, it was like no one was family, just May, even though she'd had a kid with somebody else by then, and then the one that got Frank snatched too. 
My healing brought about me revisiting those old-school modules they'd been sending into the towers for years before, the kind you just watched to learn, and it came about that I liked them quite a bit, which surprised me no less than anyone, and what was more, Lucy seemed to like me for it. She liked those school modules too. So I kept at that, and out of the rest, but that never meant I forgot the others, forgot all we did and what it meant. What it meant to me, and some more people too, all up and down the tower. What we were doing back then was simple, really. Shooting down the drones as they flew past. Delivery drones carrying all that endless bullshit to better places from the big warehouses outside. So yeah, we shot them down. You never knew what you were getting, but damn, if every day didn't feel like your birthday. If your family was one, could get gifts ever. Those delivery drones sure dropped pretty, lighting up a tail through the night sky and careening into the tower's dead gardens, then smashed to bits on the asphalt yard. Barring Lucy, nothing prettier than that. It was right after I'd broken my ankles then, when they were hatching below. Someone's got to take Wilt's place, Den said. That was me. I'm Wilt. Guessing I should have said so sooner. Of course, my job went then to Little Ray. He was the spotter now, and he'd remained spotter all those years, even when Den and then Frank were locked away. See? But that was the trouble. Which brings me to a fine point. One I'm almost reluctant to make. My learning, and I suppose my Lucy love in turn, is what eventually got Little Ray, not so little by then, nicked really good, too. Perhaps I'm what put Ray in jail in a way. So maybe my part's bigger than I've said. Just a part of absence, a nothingness along the ride all the way. One that shoved Raymond from the car. I was 24 by then, making Lucy 23, and her little brother Ray 18 or 19, depending on the time of year. It was cold, I remember, and he was a summer babe. But cold might have been coming, or it might have been going. Lucy was upstairs with me. I'd long ago pulled the bed away so nothing would stop me from hearing them plot and pont. And yeah, sure shit was I right about Lucy. That was a terrible beauty, like an endless rash of hurricanes that tore me up as some coastal town. Frank was newly back then, fresh from the vault, back before they instituted putting inmates on ice a while due to more overcrowding, so it wasn't gone real long. I'd seen him in the stairwell a few days before, and he was just as he'd been before, kindly warm, all smiling as he picked me up like I was a kid again. I'd grown up, but I was rarely still, bookish, he'd always say, but like loving. He'd heard about me and Lucy, how Lucy was expecting, and how we'd gotten together officially, and he couldn't have been happier for her, for us, he meant. Later, he came by to see Lucy, too. But then it was business as usual. Everyone had to eat, and besides, Ray and Leon and Ceylon had carried on like they'd had to carry on in Frank's absence, and without Den or me. But now Frank was back, so Ray was just spotter again, leaving Frank to the plot. Ceylon could spot in a pinch, but she'd been needing glasses a long time, and sometimes she saw only what she thought she ought to see, and Leon couldn't do it because he was blind in one eye after he and I got wrestling playing first, fighting second, when we were just nine. Ray was the spotter then. It was Frank's voice I heard most now. Lucy didn't want to part in it, so she'd gone to sit with Grandma and hummed to the little wilter inside her. And it was the same old Frank, always looking to expand sales to a few of the towers. He was smart, always thinking, just was. He'd made some Chinese friends inside, whites, Puerto Ricans, Baptists, new Luddite army, Iraqi too, 
And though the project towers were largely segregated in action, they weren't hard borders, all united and having not. There was mixing all the time, really. I mean, even May was French-Canadian, I think, with a little Cuban in her. So Frank worked it all out beforehand, the way they could climb up on the Chinese and Iraqi towers and secure new routes that maybe avoided our own, operators likely thinking they were being smart since our tower had been a problem for years and years now, flying higher and higher to miss us. Though that didn't stop desperate folks, which was us. All of us. On that damn tower like bees in a hive, angry and shaken, busy with work for some queen we could never see. Yeah, our tower was the worst, and we were damn proud of it. They tried to appease us. Putting those publics in the basement, giving us gratis access to some virtual living, but who'd want to be sitting in a body not theirs, wearing clothes nicer than ones they could afford, looking at shit you can't keep, can't have. Besides, t'was only one bomb for a problem, and that was stealing. At least that's what we told ourselves, to make it all right. Lucy and I learned there were other ways of insulating pride locked away, maybe. Even if at times they were hard to find. So Frank was saying how it'd go. Same as always, really. Just new routes overhead. Yeah, and when he said sales, he didn't mean it the way you'd think. The way people usually mean it, like it was trickery. He wasn't interested in credit anywhere. He was just as happy giving it away as long as whoever's it was wasn't having it. Trade was nice, but most of the time we just gave it away right up to the end. Back when I was still in it all, we shot down a whole box of snakes, all of them freeze-dried, I think for medical research, but damned if we didn't trade them around a while, then let the babies out into the sewer. We got weird shit all the time. Hunting blind-like, we got everything from foodstuffs to furniture, rations to ribaldries. So they were there now in Frank's room, I could hear. All of them laughing a bit. I missed them, so that was that. They'd go out that night, and some part of me was envious, itchy to be of and with them. I can't tell you what happened minutely, but I've been through it enough to guess. As you're climbing the stairwell, you get really silent around floor 30, like you can feel the tower wobbling, or maybe it's you, and you've gotten to be silent to just keep yourself from worrying, from falling over. You're lugging up lookers and anchors. Maybe it's just you because you're the spotter. Or maybe tonight someone's with you, but they're silent too, so it's like you're alone. And the electricity gets weird up there, just like the people. They flicker, it flickers. You know the stories, and that's why you're in the stairwell and not the lifts. What's in the lifts? Sometimes they break down, and sometimes people drop from the opening at the top. Just endless amounts of people all filling the space like a liquid. And then, well, game over. It doesn't matter what color your skin is then, just dead's dead. But that's why you're on the stairs. Up there, wind's cold because it's always cold up that high once you're out on the roof. You go to the spot in the cage where you or someone else has snipped away a flap, and you pin the fence back. You look. You're a spotter, so you look. Yeah, and somewhere out there, there's a light, way up and up. Drone. Drones, maybe. You call it in. We had little radios back then. Nothing fancy. But no one else was listening to those anymore. Give a direction and a code we all knew. Someone else tags it. Pierces it. Let's it drag. Then recoils. All with finesse that gets that bubber dropping just like you want it. Somewhere far below, where maybe Leon waits, or Ceylon. Even Grandma did it once. Easy. Best part is digging through the score. Nah, best part, seeing the faces in the towers when you give them the thing they needed. Or, better, the thing they didn't know they needed at all. For years, we figured people knew where these drones drop. But you had to be out of touch thinking of coming in here looking for them. What with any number of us being dangerous if you're believing the headlines. 
Not that you should. See, but then? Then someone did, sounds. I mean, I guess someone got fed up, losing their drones, sent some knuckles in to find us. All what falls is what I was told later. What the twins could manage. The end was all that matters, though. Frank was shot by forces unknown, looked like police, shot freely like police, but could have been anyone, really. Private forces. Anyway, Frank was dead and they took Ray. Said it was an arrest. Looked like one. But we don't really know. It would have been Ray was shot, though. Should have been, if Frank hadn't put himself in the way. See? It was Ray holding the land rifle, all loaded up with a big harpoon. Sounded like Ray was ready to fire upon them, too, those cop-looking fuckers, so it might have been justified. Seeing as he'd have taken at least a few of them out, point that big pounding air toward them. But with Frank? Them gunning him down that way? No. That was a cold kill. What do you expect? Didn't even make the headlines. Money. Cops. Dead black men in the towers. Just business. Leon and Ceylon were on the rooftop parallel, one belonging to Little Bombay. Saw the whole thing as the bird flies. Whoever they were, those cops, they even took Frank's body away. Heard later, something most unlikely. That particular drone that night was full of illegal. Perks, spirals, coke, down-ups, ring burners, and lush. So they were putting Ray away for sure, saying it was planned, saying it was drugs. A drug bust. Big win. They don't even drone shit like that. How could they? Or maybe they do. How'd I know? Anyway, we never seen it. And we'd pretty fairly seen it all. Later, I heard something probable. Boxes all melons, kale, and rations. Someone's produce order yonder. Whatever it was, we lost them both that night. Ray and Frank. Lucy and I sent our captures now and then, trying to seem happy. And we were, mostly. And hoping they'd make it to Ray, but knowing they probably never did. We didn't hear from the courts. Which was all about what we thought. We didn't have the ways to find him. The credits. We buried Frank. And I held Lucy... While she cried, it was like putting Ray in there with him, as far as we could tell. But our kids would know Uncle Raymond. Yeah, and Frank, too, know those stories. Sucked the way it had to happen, but Den started coming back up to see us. Ceylon and Leon stayed low then on, but they came up quite a bit, too. All like we got some family back, built sadly upon the big gap we got between us. We were hoping and praying... You know, by figure and speech, because praying is just talking to yourself, I know. Because, I mean, how could it not be with all this shit going down? We hoped Ray might just show up one day. He could, you know. Hasn't yet, but he could. And yeah, Frank was dead, but no way he'd die, die. Be dead to us. Not in memory and not in heart. So it was like he was living. Like how sometimes I can still hear his voice from the floor below. Even so, just in case, we named Frank the first. Boy or girl didn't matter. It was a girl, and we named her Frank. Years later now, and she's spittingly him, long live his soul. All warmth like a fire, but still fiery, you know? Hi, this is Heidi Bank, and this is a poem called Snow, as read by me. Snow is quiet, like the edges of the morning, just as the sun returns. Snow flattens the world into friendly monochrome, soft and dovey gray, except for my cardinal friend in the bush. 
snow is cozy sleepy, requiring blankets and whiskey and fuzzy socks and a book. Snow is a pause for quiet, quiet breath. Hi, I'm Don Tollison, and this is The Evolution of Innocence, as read by me. I became a father for the first time at 57, and my precious Gabriella has been an inspiring joy each and every day since. I had observed so many great fathers before December 16, 2009, especially my late great brother Arthur who taught my amazing nephew and Navy pilot Lieutenant Brian Tollison thousands of wonderful qualities that I have tried to teach Gabby as best I can. So many other fathers I admired over the years enabled me to increase that list dramatically. One thing that I have constantly heard from so many awesome mothers and fathers is they grow up so fast and then there's some variation of appreciate them now. I was really not looking forward to Gabby growing up too fast, but I now contend that each new example of growing up produces a fantastic new joy. My list of my favorite 100 top Gabby moments is updated constantly. To just freeze on the list a few top moments is the all-time best, would be unfair to Gabby, unfair to me, And just like eating pizza for every meal, every day. I really love pizza, especially with pepperoni and mushrooms. But do I really want to pass up burgers, cheesesteaks, steaks, chicken tenders, french fries, ham and eggs, pancakes, etc. So I can have another slice of pizza for the 99th straight meal? Uh, That would be no. It is very unlikely that Gabby raking leaves at two, holding a doll at three, dancing on a table at four, visiting a firehouse at five, complete with a firefighter's helmet, petting her beloved dog Murray at six, all dressed up with me at a father's daughter's dance at eight, will ever not remain in the top 99. But just this past weekend, there were new entries at the age of 11 including scoring a key run in a softball game, meticulously cleaning our little above-ground pool, and best of all, taking a goofy selfie of us in my car. For me, the first devastating loss of innocence was when somebody called my best friend the N-word during a basketball game. Growing up in an incredibly diverse city, called San Francisco, I was exposed to children from all races, creeds, and colors, and thankfully not to overt hatred. But at that very disappointing moment, I vowed to fight against the insidious cancer that is hatred as much as I possibly can for the rest of my life. My mother and my grandmother who raised me were champions of civil rights and justice, and hearing a hateful term made me appreciate their upbringing so much more. Most of the time, a loss of innocence for a child is far less dramatic. 
But I now realize there are teaching moments when any sort of innocence is at the very least threatened or compromised. It may not be exactly innocence, but Gabriella's incredible sense of curiosity is so wonderful, as are her constant attempts to look for the best in others. I doubt that getting older and having ups and yes downs will change that because she is so grounded in that optimistic carpe diem approach to each and every day. When we maintain our sense of curiosity and our boundless optimism, we can stave off pessimism. We can stave off cynicism and, yes, losing way too much innocence from things we cannot control. Just keep trying our best to react with ever-increasing hope and work to spread that hope. And yes, a lot of our innocence will remain, even as it evolves maturely and gracefully. You go, precious Gabriella. You go, girl. Hi, I'm Melinda Gordon, and this is an excerpt from my forthcoming book called Becoming Buster Brown, as read by me. Amid the whirlwind of impending world change and the craziness of times, I had both the excellent luck and supreme misfortune to be born in 1955. It was the perfect time to be on Earth. There was rock and roll, moon exploration, the civil rights movement, color TV, and a hamburger was 15 cents. And there was me. So much exploration and growth and excitement, yet so little knowledge about what made the people behind all of it tick. Being the first child, grandchild, and great-grandchild in the family came with a lot of perks. I was in the catbird seat for sure. My father was thrilled to welcome his little look-alike and to squire my mother and I around as if we were royalty. He took great delight in pointing out my perpetually turned-down mouth and the fact that I always seemed to be studying my surroundings, giving the impression that my intentions, even as a toddler, were scholarly and serious. My grandparents doted on me, and showered me with treats and toys and music and laughter and love and the sense that all was right in the world. And my mother? My mother dressed me in ruffles and curled my hair and sang and danced with me. We were best buddies, contentedly sitting on the floor together, wearing our mouse ears while we sang along with the Mickey Mouse Club. She posed me for unending photo sessions with my aunt, who was a photographer for TV Guide. We drove around in her red convertible wearing matching headscarves, and we sang along with the radio. Time stopped if I was ill or I scraped a knee, and everyone started breathing again once I was declared whole. It was a glamorous little life, but one that somehow never felt quite like I was living it, but that I was watching it all happen. There was always the feeling that tears could leak out at any given moment, and the unsettled feeling in my stomach almost never went away. As time went on and life took over, my quiet, compliant nature was taken as a very good thing. I was obedient, eager to please, bright, creative, and seemingly content. A model child. What could go wrong? My grandparents' home, where we lived, was a large, lively gathering place for the family. 
Musicians, businessmen, politicians, teachers, and scholars regularly sat down at our Sunday meals that usually lasted all day. The kitchen clattered with the sounds of china and pots and pans. The aromas of the morning's lox and bagels mingled with the afternoon's brisket and chicken being prepared, and occasionally some rich tobacco and coffee joined all of it for a fragrant little dance that was both exotic and comforting. It was my world, my happy place, everyone I loved and who loved me in one place. I wanted it to go on forever but not like this. Certainly somebody saw it, didn't they? The cousins ran and played and stole cookies from the table and giggled like some juvenile pirates who had just found a treasure. They were shushed and directed toward the basement or the backyard. They were loud and sweaty and having fun. I was there too, but I didn't shout or run around. Mostly, I sat on the piano bench with my contraband cookies hidden from sight. I watched and wished to be wild and silly. I wished to laugh out loud and not to worry so much. The loud voices and laughter didn't come from me. I didn't roll down the hill or climb the trees, and I certainly didn't dare ruin the day by telling anyone that my little heart was racing and that my head felt as if it was filled with cotton. But when one of those cousin pirates went a little too far and was reprimanded, it was I who burst into tears, feeling every bit of guilt as if I had been loud or sweaty and silly myself. And it was my stomach that felt the pain that came with all of this, silently crying for help. And I was four years old. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is called The Iron Hog, as read by me. East of Ohio, west of New York, lived an old iron hog, the ground kind, not the pork. Yes, a groundhog he was, by the name of Phil, in the town of Punxsutawney, living under a hill, where he'd become the iron hog for his unbroken streak of predicting if winter had six more weeks. Well, one year as his big day drew near, Phil's iron hog streak was in danger, he feared. That's when Philippa Aliquippa, in someplace PA, heard her phone ring the night before Groundhog Day. Hello there, Pippi. It's your old pal, Phil, here in Punxsutawney, feeling quite ill. I tried not to call. I tried to hold out. But it's nearly tomorrow, and my health is in doubt. Shadowed or not, a groundhog must be here. Shadowed or not, a groundhog must go. But <laughs> to sort out the seasons, so everyone knows. Tradition, the streak, to put on the show. Philippa Aliquippa, detecting desperation, said, Phil, if you're extending, I accept the invitation. Then off to Punxsutawney, from someplace PA, she set out for a surprise trip on Groundhog Day. And at Old Gobbler's Knob, still dark before the dawn, Pippa met Phil on the calm, moonlit lawn. Sneezy and wheezy, he went over each step, then one at a time had Pippi review it. She listened and nodded and played along well, keeping to herself that there was nothing to it. 
As the sun rose and a buzz filled the town, Pippa and Phil peered out from below ground. Any questions, he asked? Any last-minute stuff? By chance, have you got, Pip asked, marshmallow fluff? She smiled, then giggled, then laughed. Phil did not. No worries, Puck's pal. This old eye, I can dot. Then upward she climbed, then outward she went, and spotting no shadows, away winter she sent. A top-hatted fella then held Pip aloft. There were cheers and snapshots. In his den, <laughs> Phil coughed. That was the year partnership saved old Puck's Phil, when the Iron Hog streak he could not solo fulfill. Still, that problem was solved in time for Groundhog Day. The Philippa Aliquippa turned Punxsutawney Pip away. Hi, I'm Frank Goldstein, and this is an excerpt from my forthcoming book, Shoot It Anyway. This story is called The Man, the Myth, the Legend, as read by me. I met Frank L. Rizzo in the late 1960s, and for all the next decade, Philadelphia's police commissioner, then Mayor Frank L. Rizzo, was a newsman's dream, full of bluster and bubbling with great sound bites. A huge man in all ways, Frank grew up on the tough streets of the Italian immigrant ghetto of South Philly. Never finishing high school, he became a policeman. He rose through the ranks to become the town's tough top cop. We need a story for tonight's show. Where's Rizzo now? That question bounced around the newsroom of the late 1960s while Rizzo was police commissioner. Find the man, and you have the lead story for tonight's newscast. Perhaps of questionable ethics, but ethics and local news were words rarely found in the same sentence back then. That question resulted in my soundman Roy and reporter Marjorie Margolis and I being sent off to the Roundhouse. That's the nickname given to the circular Philadelphia Police Headquarters building at 8th and Race Streets. Roy couldn't have been a nicer guy, dependable and professional. Tradition was that the sound man drove the news car. We were always running late for our stories, speeding to catch up. News crews often bent the rules of the road to get to breaking news like fires and shootings. But today, Roy's white knuckles will have a different cause. Marjorie's story is in her future. She would resign from the station later that year and begin an honored journalism career that would ultimately lead to politics, congresswoman, public service, and, of course, mother-in-law to Chelsea Clinton. This day, she would be the screamer in the back seat. I have no recollection of the subject of the story, but the ride back to the TV station was unforgettable. Like most people, as the interview ended, Rizzo asked, Marjorie, when will this be on? Back in those days, we were still shooting film. Minicams and portable video recorders were years into the future. The film, of course, needs to be developed, a process that took about 45 minutes. Then editing took some more time, not to mention the rush hour commute back to the station. 
Well, Commissioner Marjorie responded, I don't think we'll make the early news. This won't be on until 11. Rizzo asked, What's that? It's rush hour, Commissioner, and when we get back to the station, the film we shot will have to be developed, and that all takes time, sir. With that, Rizzo picked up the phone. I want two highway patrol cars in front of the roundhouse, right away. The four of us exited the building together, and as we did, two sparkling highway patrol cars were parked at the curb. Alongside of the cars, two spit-shining officers in leather boots, Sam Brown belts with 50 Mission Crush caps, stand at attention and snap to salute to their commander. Rizzo, in all his commander voice, orders his officers, You take the front, you take the back, I want these people back to the TV station as fast as possible. With that, Roy got the news car, we loaded our equipment as the highway cops waited, and then off we went. Right on 8th Street, and as we approached Race Street, the lights and sirens came on, front and back. Traffic on Race Street screeched to a stop as we blew through the red light at the intersection. Roy looked at me with a fearful and quizzical face. Marjorie was equally surprised. Soon, a left on Divine Street to the Schuylkill Expressway ramp. As cars and trucks jumped out of our siren-squealing way, a combination of fear and embarrassment overwhelmed the three of us. Roy's grip on the steering wheel turned his knuckles a bloodless white. We easily slipped onto the expressway entrance ramp, our bodies leaning to the right from the centrifugal force of the speeding turn. Seconds later, we're on the expressway. Wait a minute. Correct that. We're on the shoulder of the expressway, as traffic on the highway proper is at a dead rush hour stop. But not us. If memory serves me, we are speeding along at about 85 miles an hour on the shoulder. Seems like hours, cruising along with our escorts. But only a few minutes later... Still, with lights and sirens, we pull into the TV station parking lot. Heads turned and mouths are wide open with bulging eyes. It was both bizarre and embarrassing. It's taken me a half century to explain this to you. Thanking our highway patrol friends and pouring our melted bodies from the news cruiser, we walked silently past our confused co-workers and into the building. Oh, and by the way, the interview didn't make the early news. It was never even scheduled for the show. Hi, I'm Melinda Gordon, and this is A Day to Remember, as read by me. Walking casual through the park, an average day out on a lark, outstretched a path way past the mark that we could see, except a spark we thought might be a fun event. A picnic or a circus tent? The path rolled on and then it bent. A blue cast from the sky had sent some rainbow-colored whirly gigs 
to dance and sparkle, zag and zig their way through crowds which were quite big. Excitement grew, the voices rose. We stretched way up on tippy toes to use our senses, ears and nose, and sight to take in all the rows of children, every shape and size, happy prancing little guys whose thoughts were pure and good and wise, who knew the value of strong ties to Mother Nature and her kin, and all the wonders there within. Their hearts and souls bereft of sin, open, letting beauty in. It felt so free, it felt so clean, to be part of that groovy scene, the kindness and the never mean of unspoiled little kings and queens. They circled round old Mother N and danced in rhythm, counting 10. We promised we'd see her again, but when? Mothers called, it's getting dark. Come home, come hither, come now, hark. With teary smiles, we embarked our journey from that magic park where we for sure had learned it best when putting humans to the test of what is right and all the rest. Look to the children. They are blessed. Hi, this is Rich Hosek, and here's a little story about a resolution gone wrong called Resolved as read by me. Roger looked at the woman curled up next to him on his sofa while the New Year's Eve show they were watching played on the television. She smiled back at him. So, any resolutions? she asked. It was the same question he had heard from hundreds of different women in all the variations of New Year's Eve he had experienced so far. It was a question that had started it all. The first time he had been asked about his resolutions for the coming year, he had laughed it off, but his companion, on that first changing of the calendar, seemed offended by his cavalier attitude. You must have a resolution, she insisted. It's just a silly tradition, he replied. No one really does anything they promise for the whole year. That's no excuse not to try, the woman replied. I'm open for suggestions, he challenged. In the background, the countdown for the new year was coming down to the last few seconds. He'll never forget that expression on her face. She was smiling, but not in a friendly, happy way. It was more of a smirk that conveyed to Roger that she knew something he didn't know. You might regret that decision, she warned. Try me, he dared. Okay, since you are so reckless with your decisions, you resolve to make only good decisions for the entire year. What does that mean, he asked. But before he could even finish the question, the people around them erupted into shouts of Happy New Year! She grabbed his face with her hands and kissed him, hard. It wasn't the soft, passionate kiss that promised more to come he had experienced on previous New Year's Eve dates. She held him tight, and it felt like she was sucking the air out of his lungs. He struggled to break free but couldn't, and eventually everything went dark. He awoke alone in his bed, not remembering how he got there. He was hung over and felt the beginnings of a cold tickling the back of his throat. It was a day off, so it took him a while to notice that something was odd. At first, there was a weird sense of deja vu that he couldn't turn off. It felt like everything he did, everything that happened, had happened before. Then he realized why. He was back to the beginning of the year he had just celebrated the end of. 
At first he wondered if it was some kind of prank, but if it was, the whole world was in on it. The same news stories were on the front page of the newspaper. The same teams were playing in the big college bowl games. The weather was exactly the same. The next day at work, he sat through the same first quarter company meeting, had the same conversations with his co-workers, and went home to find out that the latest episode of his favorite television show was the one he had already seen. He was reliving the last year over again. He couldn't handle it. He thought it was a dream. He tried to go along with it for a few days, but after the first week, he couldn't bear to go to work anymore. He spent a month just staring at the television, tuning to the channels he had never watched to see something new, anything new. But nothing new really happened. He would go out once in a while, but his savings soon evaporated and he started borrowing himself into a financial hole. He just needed to get past this year. And so the year passed, day by familiar day, until he found himself watching some mindless New Year's Eve show on TV. Midnight came. He awoke alone in his bed, not remembering how he got there. He was hung over and felt the beginnings of a cold tickling the back of his throat. For some reason, the memory of his last New Year's Eve date and the resolution she had crafted for him was present in his mind. Was that it? Was he being given a chance to remedy all the bad decisions he had made over the past year? Was this a blessing instead of a curse? So he tried using his knowledge of where he could have made better choices to improve his life instead of hiding from it. And things went well, mostly. And at the end of the year, he accepted an invitation to a party he had turned down previously, met a nice girl, exchanged resolutions, and a kiss with her. He awoke alone in his bed, not remembering how he got there. He was hung over and felt the beginnings of a cold tickling the back of his throat. So... Obviously, he was going to have to do better. The third time through, things did improve markedly. He got a promotion at work, entered into a healthy relationship, even found time to visit his parents. But after he exchanged a kiss with his newly minted fiancé on New Year's Eve, he awoke alone in his bed. The next few iterations, he continued his effort to make the best decisions, the ones that would lead to the most successful outcomes, always chasing a slightly better path each time. But each year ended back at the beginning. So he gave up and tried something else. By now he had a good idea of who was going to win all the major sporting events, so he gathered all the cash good, including advances on his credit cards, and quickly parlayed it into a small fortune. And just had fun. He bought sports cars, yachts, exotic pets, luxury mansions, even drugs and thousand-dollar bottles of wine. Several iterations passed in decadence, but always led him back to the beginning. So then he memorized a few big lottery jackpots, giving him enormous payouts that he donated to charities, hoping that one big bow jest would earn him a reprieve from this timeless prison. He awoke alone in his bed. He had lost count by this time of how many years had passed, or rather, how many times this one particular year had passed. He tried making the best possible decisions he could come up with. He tried making the most financially beneficial, the most considerate, even asking what would Jesus do. But each ended with the same result. He awoke alone in his bed, not remembering how he got there. He was hung over and felt the beginnings of a cold tickling the back of his throat, and the words of his bewitching New Year's date echoing in his ears. You resolved to make only good decisions. Good decisions? Hadn't he tried that? Well, he supposed it depended on what your definition of good was. Awfully subjective, he complained. But at the same time, he got to thinking about what a good decision was to him. If he was forced to come up with a definition, the first one that came to mind was that it was a decision that he felt good about. Well, why not? 
When it came time to decide which project to lead at work, he picked the one that he knew he would have fun doing, that would be interesting and challenging rather than the one that was simple and straightforward and an easy win. When he chose where to go on vacation, he picked the one that was familiar and relaxing rather than the one that was advertised as the single's paradise, and met Emily, a sweet girl who was strong and independent and made him want to be the best version of himself. And when he had to decide what to do on New Year's Eve, he and Emily spent a cozy evening at home. So, any resolutions? she asked. Roger smiled. Just one. I want to find a resolution to my last resolution. What's that supposed to mean? Emily asked. Just kiss me first, Roger said, as the host on the television show they had tuned into counted down to zero. Emily kissed him softly, passionately. He clung to that kiss for as long as he dared. His eyes closed. Their lips parted. Then he heard Emily say, Happy New Year. Roger opened his eyes. Emily was still there, smiling. What do you want to do this year? she asked. I have no idea, he asked. You decide. My name is Peter Waits. This is my story, My Wine Day, is read by me. Oh, by the way, wine is W-H-I-N-E, not W-I-N-E. I don't drink wine, except for the four glasses of Manischewitz I drink at our Seder on Passover. But every once in a while, I need to wine. And today is my wine day, and it is good to wine. The experts have weighed in. Couples that don't argue with each other are in big trouble. They quietly hold grudges, and that is a death knell for a relationship. Couples that want their relationship to last forever and ever have to learn how to argue properly, how to express their gripes in a productive way, hence my wine. As one young woman recently told me, this is what she mentioned to her counselor, he won't argue with me, and I wish he'd say something. Damn it, I wish he'd fight with me. If that couple comes here to our house, you know who and I are here to help them. Because we have been doing it for so long, we have mastered arguing. And we are prepared to let them and you, if you need it, come here to watch us argue so you two can learn the right method, so you can have a long-lasting, loud-loving, and passionate relationship. In the 1950s, Arthur Godfrey had popular morning and evening shows on both radio and television. On his programs, he often used to strum his ukulele and sing insensitive songs. One was so insensitive I can't bring myself to repeating it here. The other one has a slight edge, but it isn't too bad, and here it is. You keep me waiting till it's getting aggravating, you're a slow poke. Over the years, it would have been apropos for me to buy a ukulele to sing this song. Being tidy annoys me. For example, in our relationship, the one between you know who and me, I am the one that likes to be on time. You know who was less concerned. And her tardiness impacts how long it takes us to get ready to go out. Typically, from my perspective, and if our getting ready to go out was being broadcast on the radio, this is how it would sound. The announcer would begin, It's time to start to prepare to leave the house. Both contestants have showered and are at the starting line. Ready? On your mark. Get set. Go. First, a little background. My closet is not in our bedroom. My clothes were expelled decades ago 
because there was no room for her clothes and mine in what would normally be considered our shared bedroom closet. My small wardrobe was banished to hang with stuff cluttering the floor. The I have no idea what the stuff is in the closet in the guest room. Now that the background was out of the way, it is time to get back to the story. The man of the house, that's me, has two bureaus in his room. He has walked over to the bureau near the window and has opened the third drawer down and has extracted underwear and a t-shirt. He next opened the fourth drawer down and extracted a pair of socks. He then donned these items, and so partially attired, he went to his closet, extracted a shirt and a pair of trousers, and he donned them. Then he reached for his belt and wove it through the loops and buckled it. All of this took approximately three and one-half minutes. Fully attired, he is now ready to descend to the first floor, put on his shoes, put on a jacket, and depart. But he can't depart just yet, because his other half has not descended from upstairs yet. The woman of the house, that's you-know-who, began to get ready for her departure at the same time as the man of the house. But for her to get all putzed, all dressed up, is a time-consuming endeavor. When he was already descending to downstairs, she was still standing nude in front of her closet, and she was quietly talking to herself. If we got close to her, we would hear her musing about what she would like to wear. Her decision is difficult. Her selection is large. Her closet is jammed full. And then after picking up this or that, she still has to decide which shoes or boots best complement her selection. The footwear selection is not easy. With about 50 pairs to choose from, a lot of color matchups are taking place. The time she stands in front of her closet of her getting ready to get dressed varies, but I can say with confidence that it will go on and on and on for quite some time, well past the three and a half minutes of her husband. Eventually she does come downstairs, but our departure is still not imminent if she is carrying a necklace. As we have aged, it has become more and more difficult to properly secure the tiny and very frilly clasp of her necklace. It is now my job to attach it. And even though my eyeglass prescription is current, attaching the delicate clasp was becoming more and more difficult. Yeah, it does get done, and momentarily I then assume we are about to go, but my thought is premature. At the moment, I am experiencing a premature evacuation. Walking to the door, she will suddenly stop, and she will turn around. She needs multiple tries to exit the house. The pattern is well established. She walks across the room. I open the front door, and then she turns around and she walks back into the house. Why? I don't know. I have no idea. She just likes to wander around. In summation, when it is time to go, I'm fast, she's slow, and we need to compromise. We each need to give a little, and that means for me to slow down a bit and for her to speed up a bit. For us to meet halfway, we will both just have to learn how to be half-fast. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Get Bent, as read by me. What a year it's been for elbows, such an age to be alive, when we germ-free mid-arm hinges like no other time have thrived. While our hearts go out to handshakes, palms and fingers, what a run. There's a new joy in the world. It's we elbows having fun. Sure, in the past we did get bent at other extremity fuss. While we were tucked away in sleeves, no one would humor us. 
But humorous heaven it's been of late, leading goodbyes and greetings. Everywhere you go an elbow is, central to people's meetings. It's the joint I think you would agree, keeping the world spinning. Like never before, no one can slow the elbows from their winning. Nope, no Tommy John, no macho man, no arm-patched coat or sweater. Has ever had an elbow that has ever had it better. Hi, this is Mike Archer. I have a short story collection called Living with Humans, Stories of Each Other. This is the main story of the collection, Living with Humans, as read by me. It was a high blue sky with cotton ball clouds and a gentle breeze. Regal was swooping and gliding high above the treetops. The month of May brought the glories of spring, and for Regal and Queenie, a new life getting ready to hatch in their giant nest on top of the tallest tree in Willow Lake Park. The bald eagle couple had lived together in the park for several years. It was owned by the town of Madison, about 15 miles north of Philadelphia. Regal could look down on the walking trails, the lake stocked with fish that he often caught for dinner, a rolling meadow, the lush forest, wildflowers, a bird-watching shelter, and a pavilion for picnics. People could lose themselves walking through the dense woods, where the only sound was the music of the birds and the buzz of the bugs. Regal started his 80-mile-an-hour dive over the edge of the lake. He swooped down in a J-shaped curve toward the middle of the lake. His talons broke the still water as he grabbed a small fish and rose to the sky on his way back to Queenie. Shadow the squirrel was nervously hopping around the floor of the woods, also looking for something to eat. While he preferred fruit, nuts, and vegetables, he would also enjoy a bug or a juicy caterpillar. He was about five feet off the walking trail when he heard two middle-aged women approaching. He was not afraid of being seen. Humans just accept squirrels as part of the landscape and ignore them unless they get into their attic. The women were talking nonstop. Shadow just considered it white noise. Not this time. Well, the Board of Supervisors said the town was in such a deep financial hole that it had no choice but to sell the park to that developer who's been building homes all around the area. They say the money from the sale and taxes from the new homeowners will solve all the financial problems for years to come. The other woman shook her head. I know a lot of people are upset and want to know how we got into this mess. I walked through this park with my mother when I was a little girl. We don't need more houses and traffic and noise. Her friend said, well, I hear the deal is done and there's no turning back. Shadow jolted up on his hind legs and dropped the bug he was about to enjoy. His world had suddenly changed. He had heard horror stories from his friends about their homes being wiped out by developers. But he thought Willow Lake had been here for generations. It would never be destroyed for money. Shadow's next thought, go tell Regal. Regal had just settled down in the nest. Queenie was sitting on the egg. One of them would always be with the egg. Regal would pull his duty of egg-sitting and love the idea of being a father. They started sharing the catch of the day. The nest was at the top of the tallest tree in the park and was six feet long and three feet wide. Regal and Queenie met in the park a couple of years earlier and had become partners for life. 
They were the proud symbol of America from its founding. By the mid-20th century, man had almost wiped out the species. Hundreds of thousands of bald eagles were killed by hunters and pesticides. Their habitat was nearly destroyed by pollution from oil, lead, mercury, and power line electrocution. Queenie was enjoying dinner. You were back quickly today. Any news from your flight? I was just enjoying the beautiful day and thinking how lucky we are, but I am concerned about the world our new baby will find when he or she grows up. Queenie knew this was something constantly on their minds. They had friends who had moved miles away after developers' bulldozers ripped up their world. Shadow was mumbling to himself as he climbed up Regal and Queenie's tree. Why did they have to live this far up? I even get dizzy up here. The bird traffic is crazy. As he came up to the bottom of the nest, he called out, Regal, Queenie, hello, it's Shadow, I'm coming up. Regal and Queenie knew Shadow had something important to talk about. They knew he did not like the long climb. Shadow climbed over the edge of the nest and sat on the outer edge not to disturb Queenie and the egg. Shadow was a little out of breath. Regal, I have some bad news. I just heard two women talking, and they were saying the Board of Supervisors was selling the park to developers because they were in financial trouble. They said it's a done deal. Queenie looked quickly from Shadow to Regal. He was staring at Shadow. She could see the rage in his eyes. He turned his head to look out at the horizon. As the breeze ruffled his feathers, he said, This is the day we all feared. Shadow already knew this was a life-changing development, but Regal's reaction made him shudder. Regal was the one they all recognized as their leader. He was not only the symbol of the country, but his species survived the worst instincts of man's greed and indifference. Shadow knew the news would shake the park with the force of a hurricane. What do you need me to do, Regal? Regal turned toward Shadow without hesitation and said, Go tell Big Buck and have him set up a meeting of the council. Shadow climbed down under the nest and started the long trip back to the forest floor. Queenie looked at Regal. When will this ever end? For hundreds of years, generations of our ancestors have been slaughtered. It's a miracle we're here today. Now we need to worry whether this baby we're about to hatch will have to live in fear and find fewer and fewer places to live. Humans will never change. We can never trust them. Regal knew the history all too well. It finally took drastic measures by humans to stop the hunters and the pesticide makers from almost wiping out the species entirely. Man's relentless push for new development was a constant threat. Regal said, We will do everything we can to protect our new baby and the rest of our friends in the park. They've all been through this before. We just have to make sure everyone can survive. Shadow knew where to find Big Buck. He stayed in the thickest part of the woods during the day. He liked to roam at night when the park was quiet. Buck was grazing among the trees when he heard Shadow approaching. He raised his head crowned with six-point antlers. Shadow knew Buck was a no-nonsense guy and wasn't much for small talk. He turned from the grass he was munching and gave the nervous squirrel a look that said he really didn't want to be disturbed. Shadow, what's up? To what do I owe the pleasure of you interrupting my lunch? Shadow sat up on his hind legs and swallowed hard. Regal sent me down to tell you to call a council meeting because the park is being sold to developers. They're going to build houses. Buck raised his voice. What? How do you know this? Regal was getting more nervous. I heard two women talking. The town has real money trouble. One woman said it's a done deal. Damn it. How many times do we have to go through this? They never have enough. 
It's always more houses and streets, more cement, more blacktop, and more power lines. This can't wait. We will meet tonight in the usual spot. I need you to let the council members know. You can move around more freely than I can. Can you handle that? Shadow felt he was being trusted with a great responsibility. I got it, Buck. I'll make sure everyone is there. Buck said, I'm counting on you. Hi, this is Rich Hosek, and here is a scary little campfire story sure to give you chills, called White, as read by me. The snow came down in large white clumps, so quickly that my footprints were erased as fast as I made them, trudging back to the cabin from the woodpile with an armload of logs. The satellite dish perched on my roof was buried in the winter's snowfall, and completely useless. But I didn't need some fancy TV weatherman to tell me it was going to be a hell of a storm. The solar panels were likewise ineffective this time of year, so the television was nothing but a blank frame anyway. I had plenty of kerosene for my lamps, and the wood kept me warm to cook my food. There was a shortwave radio for emergencies, but it got all the power it needed from a car battery. My books didn't require electricity, so as long as I had light to read by, the storm could do what it wanted. I didn't own the one-room cabin. They came with a job. I was a ranger for the National Park Service. But I didn't do the typical ranger stuff, like admonishing tourists about leaving food out for the bears, or cautioning them to stick to the trails and stay hydrated. I was a sort of concierge, catering to the hikers and mountaineers who came to summit the mountain. Those who held this post before me had carved their names and the years they were here into the wooden lintel above the door. Curiously, none of them seemed to have held the post for more than one winter. Ascending the nearby peak, especially in the winter, was a challenge for a lot of alpinists. Its remoteness was particularly appealing for solo climbers, but the National Park Service wasn't too fond of climbers getting lost or injured, so I served as a base camp that was there if they needed help. My visitors jokingly called the simple cabin the Last Chance Inn. Normally, I saw a few people a week, some requiring first aid, others needing water or food or some piece of equipment. There was a box of odds and ends in one corner of the cabin that served as a take-one-leave-one collection of climber's gear that had apparently grown over the years. Ropes, pitons of various shapes and sizes, socks, gloves, hammers, even a pair of crampons could all be found there, probably enough to outfit someone who had come this far with nothing more than hiking boots. Once the cold set in, I saw maybe a few people a month. They were supposed to get a permit to attempt the summit in the winter, and then check in with me before their climb and after their descent, just to make sure there weren't any bodies wasting away on the peak. Odds were I wouldn't have any visitors for the next month or two. Hopefully, someone was checking regularly to see that smoke was coming out of my chimney, and the stores of freeze-dried meals I had hauled up in the fall would last until the snow melted. So, I nearly choked on the coffee I was drinking when I heard knocking. I set down my mug, walked the three steps to the door, and opened it. The man standing there was knee-deep in snow, wearing a fur coat, mittens, and had a knapsack on his back. He wasn't the typical climber who graced my threshold. He wasn't wearing the latest lightweight insulated parka and tinted goggles, nor did he have ropes and carabiners hanging off his belt. It's really coming down. You mind if I come in? he asked. Sorry, please do, I replied. Welcome to the Last Chance Inn. He smiled at the name. Last Chance Inn or out, he remarked. With him came an avalanche of snow. While he started slipping out of his coat in front of the fire, 
I grabbed the shovel I kept by the door and scooped the drift that had forced its way inside back out into the cold where it belonged. I closed the door, then crossed to the stove where the coffee pot was keeping warm. Would you like a cup? I offered. He waved off the offer and settled into one of the rough-hewn chairs in front of the fireplace. I picked up my coffee and joined him. So, which are you? I asked. Pardon me? Are you coming in or going out? He smiled. Just passing through. Don't get many of those, I told him. No, I don't expect you do. Welcome to stay the night. I have extra cots, I offered. Thank you, he said in a way that left it unclear as to whether he was accepting my offer. You're lucky you found this place. It's really coming down. Where are you headed? He glanced at the small window pane over the tiny kitchen sink, now completely covered with snow. We get a storm like this at least once a year. There's so much snow that everything stops. The animals and birds hunker down. Even the people stay away. It's peaceful, he said, avoiding my question. Yes, I agreed, but I still wouldn't want to be caught out in it. He nodded. So you've heard the stories, the man said, staring into the fire. Stories? I asked. He looked at me surprised. About the beast, he said. Ah, the beast. I had heard the stories, mostly in the context of visitors to the Last Chance Inn remarking that the beast hadn't gotten me yet. The versions I heard so far described it as a giant bear, or a huge ape, or even a wolf that walked on two legs. The one thing they all had in common, though, was that it was as white as the snow and had glowing red eyes. Yeah, I've heard them, I said. The local Bigfoot, huh? The stranger laughed. <laughs> Bigfoot has nothing on the beast, he claimed. Oh, really? You want to know the real story? he asked. I topped off the fire with a fat log. Sure. Looks like we've got all night. He sat back and stretched out his legs. He was wearing a buckskin shirt and pants and fur-lined leather boots. Everything looked like it was handmade. His hair and beard were both shaggy and thick, and both almost pure white. He didn't look like he was much over thirty, though. His skin was pale, but free of wrinkles, and his eyes were bright and full of life. I wondered if he had a cabin somewhere in the woods, even more off the grid than this one and suspected he was one of those crazy preppers who were completely self-sufficient, living solely off the land. The stories go back to the first tribes that inhabited these lands. When they arrived here, they encountered the beast during their first winter. It took one of their women. Three of their best hunters went out to kill it. They were never seen again. The beast didn't return for the rest of the winter, and they lived unmolested throughout the spring and summer and through the next fall. But when the winter returned and the first big snowfall of the season stilled the landscape, the beast came back. One of the elders of the tribe offered himself to the creature. It struck the old man down, then started eating his flesh and bones as the rest of the men watched. Once it had finished consuming its prey, it flashed its red eyes, then disappeared into the snow, not leaving even the slightest trace that it had been there. They thought it must be a god, and decided from that day on to honor it by sacrificing one of their number each winter. This continued for centuries, but as the years passed and the white man pushed the tribe off this land, the tradition was abandoned, but the beast still demands its tribute, and if you're unfortunate enough to be the one it finds alone in the snow, you'll never be seen again. Some say the beast is supernatural, that it has the ability to assume the shape of other animals and hide in plain sight. It hibernates in its fashion during the heat of the summer, waking in the fall to mark its prey. I couldn't help but smile. This was certainly the best telling of the story I had heard yet. 
Well, nothing's going to be moving in this storm, including me, so I don't think I have anything to worry about. The stranger shrugged. There was one year when none of the elders of the tribe agreed to be sacrificed to the beast. They hoped that it would pass them up that winter. But instead, the beast stole into every hut where there was a newborn child and took them all. The creature has become accustomed to its winter meal. If it cannot find its human victim out in the blizzard, it will find it where it can. If you seek shelter in a cave, it will root you out. If you are a stranded motorist, it will peel open your car like a tin can. If you are in a small wooden cabin... I nearly jumped out of my skin at the loud pounding on the door. Lukewarm coffee spilled into my lap and I leapt to my feet. My sleeve got caught in the armrest of the wooden chair and I took a tumble onto the linoleum floor, nearly banging my head against the kitchen table. I scrambled to my feet and looked back at the stranger. Do you really think an ancient snow beast would bother to knock? He asked rhetorically. No, but I'm not sure I want to find out who's crazy enough to be out in a storm like this. You mean, who else? He corrected with a smile. I dabbed the coffee off my pants with a kitchen towel as I crossed the short distance to the door, eyeing the lockbox on the small hutch where I kept a loaded gun. I opened the door. A gust of wind blew a torrent of snow into the cabin. And then I saw a tall figure standing in the doorway. It had fur as white as the snow and eyes as red as embers. It entered, peeled back the fur on its head, and raised its hands to those glowing eyes then I realized it was a woman, dressed in a white fur parka with red-lensed goggles, that she removed to reveal dark, almost black eyes and equally ebon hair. What's a girl got to do to get out of the cold around here? she asked. Sorry, come on in, I said, stepping aside. For the second time, I shoveled the encroaching drift back outside and shut the door. The woman slipped out of her parka. Under it, she wore what looked like a leather jumpsuit, almost form-fitting. I couldn't imagine that it would keep her very warm unless it had a hidden lining. Hello, she said to the stranger in front of the fire, ignoring me completely. Can I get you some coffee? I asked. She turned and looked me over. Do you have any bourbon to put in it? She asked. I shook my head. She shrugged and took the seat I had vacated to answer the door. Never mind. I poured myself a fresh cup of coffee, grabbed one of the smaller chairs from the kitchen table, and placed it so I could join my guests around the fire. Rough night to be out for a walk, I said, hoping to break the awkward silence that had developed. Oh, I love the snow, the woman replied. I saw the smoke from your fire and thought it might be a good idea to warm up a bit. Oh my, she said, as if suddenly realizing something she forgot. You must think me terribly rude. Thank you for letting me in to share your fire. No problem, that's what I'm here for, I replied. Really? We thought for a second that you were the beast, the man said. The what? she asked. It's kind of a local legend, I explained. Apparently there is a creature that stalks these parts during the heaviest snow of the winter in search of a human victim. She smiled. I guess I'm flattered that you think I'd have to be some sort of beast in order to be out in the snow. The man leaned forward. It is said that the beast can disguise itself as an animal. Why not a beautiful woman? What better way to lure its victim into a false sense of security? She laughed again. <laughs> that would be clever. She turned toward the stranger and looked him up and down, and I swear she licked her lips. You look like you would make a good meal, she said. He smiled. I think you'd find me rather tough. He nodded in my direction. I think our young host would be much more flavorful. She turned her gaze to me, her eyes dancing over my body, while she bit her lower lip. 
Yes, I see what you mean. I have some Tabasco in the cabinet, if that will help, I offered. The woman started laughing, and the odd tension that had developed melted away. The man laughed, too. But when he did, I thought I caught a glint of red in his eyes. Just a reflection from the fire, I assured myself. Seriously, the woman continued, here we are, three strangers in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, buried in snow, talking about some beast possibly stalking us. I'm starting to think I should have stayed home. Yeah, I agreed. It sounds like a corny horror movie. She turned to the man. I don't think I've seen you around before. Where do you live? I have a place on the other side of the mountain, he replied. I don't get out much. The woman spun around in her seat to face me. And you just let him in? Like I said, I explained. That's what I'm here for, in case someone needs assistance. And you're not worried that he's this beast? Why would he tell me the story? I asked. A hundred reasons, she replied. To put you off your guard? To justify his transforming into a giant white creature with glowing red eyes and ripping you limb from... I thought you didn't know anything about the beast, the man challenged. I don't think we mentioned anything about what it looked like since you've arrived. The woman laughed, shaking her head. She held up her hands. You got me. I'm the beast. And it looks like I get a supersized meal tonight, she said, eyeing the two of us as she continued laughing. I couldn't help but join in. The man seemed equally amused, but assumed a posture that was ready for action. I looked at him, and he met my eyes, then glanced across the room. I knew exactly where he was looking, at the metal case on the hutch that held my pistol. He surely assumed I was armed, living here alone, and the lockbox was the most logical place to keep my weapon. Was he trying to tell me that this woman actually was the beast? Could that be possible? Her story about liking to wander around in a blizzard in that ridiculous skin-tight outfit was a bit sketchy. But did that mean she was an ancient creature driven to eat human flesh? Awkward, the woman chimed, a mischievous smile on her face. Her eyes glowed red. It wasn't a trick of the light. There was a definite crimson radiance in the back of her eyes. She smiled again, broadly, and her teeth appeared to have grown, her incisors protruding over her lower lip. I think I need more coffee, I said, rising quickly. I set my cup down on the kitchen table, but instead of refilling it, I continued walking over to the hutch. The case wasn't locked, but I had to open the latch to gain access to the gun inside. It was loaded, and a round was chambered. I swung around, and immediately the man grabbed my wrist and thrust it upward, pointing the gun at the ceiling. Behind him, the woman was no longer human. She was seven feet tall, covered in a fine white fur with a wolf-like muzzle and fiery eyes. What are you doing? I asked the man. He was strong. His other hand grabbed my neck. You know, some people think the beast isn't some immortal demon, but a creature that lives and dies, is born and gives birth to more of its kind, which would imply that there is more than one of them. And from time to time, they need to seek each other out and mate. I looked at the man. His eyes assumed the same fire as the beast behind him. And in an instant, he was an even taller beast whose razor-sharp claws sliced through my neck, severing arteries and crushing my trachea. I couldn't breathe. I fired the gun into the ceiling. Once. Twice. Then the strength left my hand, and the gun fell free and clattered onto the linoleum. The beast let go of my wrist, and I slumped to the floor. 
He turned his attention to his mate. They engaged in an act that was brief and appeared painful for both of them. When they were finished, they ripped away my clothing, then dismembered me and crushed flesh and bone between their powerful jaws until I was completely consumed. No wonder no one held this job for more than a year. Hi, I'm Don Tollefson, and this is Finding Our Heroes, as read by me. The best way to usually identify educational heroes is to study their quotes, to find one that absolutely defines the greatness of their teaching methods. Enter to learn, leave to serve. Mary McLeod Bethune was the 15th child of former slaves. Her simple six-word philosophy is so on point. It adorns the hallways of the elementary school named for her near Temple Hospital in North Philadelphia and the driveway entrance and exit of the marvelous LaSalle High School in Winmore, as well as the great HBUC University Bethune-Cookman, named for her in Daytona Beach, Florida. And her name is connected to so many other schools, as well it should be. Enter to learn, leave to serve. Discovery is seeing what everybody else has seen and thinking what nobody else has thought. Albert St. Georgi was the Hungarian biochemist who won the Nobel Prize in Physiology in 1937, and among his many other scientific accomplishments was the isolation of vitamin C. During his years in the United States, he worked with the Mayo Foundation in Minnesota and the Institute for Muscle Research in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, where he passed away in 1986 at the age of 93. Discovery is seeing what everybody else has seen and thinking what nobody else has thought. Albert Einstein said so many great things, but all those heroes who teach would almost certainly agree with this statement of the legendary intellectual who once gave a famous lecture at another great HBUC, Lincoln University in Oxford, Pennsylvania. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Again, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. I could go on for days with more inspiring quotes about teaching, but let me close today with the quote that I feel best defines what millions of teachers continue to do each and every day for millions of students around the world. A life is not important, except in the impact it has on other lives. That was said by a man who lettered in four sports at UCLA before becoming the most important baseball player in American history, and likely the most important athlete in general in our nation's history. Jack, Jackie Roosevelt Robinson. I am wrapping up this essay just before 3 p.m. on a Monday. So a lot of schools are just letting out, and a lot of virtual school days are also winding down. So here's to the teachers and coaches and mentors who teach children, and hopefully many adults as well, to not just appreciate these quotes, but to live them. 
for a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Leaps and Grounds, as read by me. The tulips are up. Why? What do they know? That the groundhog was right? That we're done with the snow? It's still February. They're shaking my nerves. It's been warm this week, but March weather curves. Suppose they keep rising up out of the yard, and one night of frost descends on them hard. The head start each bulb will have by then got, will in one cold flash become all for naught. Which leaves me to wonder about flower brains and the speed and direction of flower thought trains. Are my tulips digging toward their own demise, or are they well informed as they reach for the skies? I've watched and I've listened, my ear to the ground, but so far there's been not from them one sound. Loose lips may sink ships, but these tulips don't speak, except by the rise of their eager green beak. Out of the dirt, propelled maybe by knowing, this year's nearer to flowers than it is to snowing. My name is Peter Waits. This is a story about two degrees of separation between me and the saint. Is read by me. When I was a little boy, I was told there were three degrees of separation between all the people in the world. Its meaning was that each of us is at most only three people away from knowing everyone else on the planet. We don't know the path to get to anyone in particular, but everyone knows someone, so the paths are short and circuitous, and they do exist. A few years ago, you know who, that's my wife. She and I were visiting with some friends, a rabbi and his wife. And in the course of that conversation we were having, the rabbi mentioned that when his pulpit was in Chicago, his shul was merging with another one. There was no need for two buildings, and it was his that was being sold to a church. He was doing the negotiating. The negotiator for the church was Jesse Jackson. From this matter-of-a-fact conversation, we learned that you know who and I are just two degrees away from Jesse Jackson, and that means we're only three degrees away from Martin Luther King. <laughs> who would have thunk it? Way back when, when we were growing up in Massachusetts, in a neighborhood called Mattapan, the neighborhood we lived in was predominantly Jewish. If either of us told our family and friends that one day we'd know someone who was a friend of someone who was elevated to sainthood, who could possibly think of it or believe it? How did it happen that you know who and I would be only two degrees away from a saint? Not three degrees, just two. Catholics believe saints sit at the right hand of God. So how would we get to know anyone who knows someone who sits so close to God? At any time in our life, if we said that someday we'd be close to a saint, we'd have been considered a nut. How could I, a Jewish boy, or you-know-who, a Jewish girl, know someone like that? Ben Salem takes pride in its commitment to and strong program to make Ben Salem a no-place-for-hate community. The sole purpose of the program is to help people learn about the cultures and traditions that surround us, to help us to get along, to help us to stamp out bigotry, and during the week that celebrates Martin Luther King Day, 
we in Ben Salem have a week-long celebration called Unity Week. It's a unique program and has received many awards. Every day during the celebration, there was at least one scheduled gathering at a house of worship. And you know who and I make every effort to attend as many of these houses of worship as we can. Every year, programs are held at churches, at a synagogue, a Buddhist temple, and hosted by an Islamic organization. Our mayor, Joseph DiGeralamo, is a native of Ben Salem. He's a few years older than I am. I'm not embarrassed to say that he and I have a love affair. I love him, and every time he sees me, he stops whatever he's doing. He stops talking to whoever he's talking to, and he comes over to me, shouts my name, and gives me a huge hug. In a loud voice, he announces, I love this man. When he sees other people that he knows, he doesn't greet them that way. When he sees them, he simply shakes the hand. Not that anyone has asked, but the mayor and I have a mixed relationship. He's a Republican, and I am a Democrat. The mayor has lived here all his life. The last gathering of the festive week is traditionally held at the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, a shrine for a saint, Mother Catherine Mary Drexel. It's a real place. You can look it up. A few years ago, after the formal portion of the gathering was done, the mayor was asked to say a few words. Mayor DiGeralamo never says just a few words. When he's talking about Ben Salem, he talks a lot. With a large smile on his face and with his pride in Ben Salem beaming from every pore in his body, he started to reminisce about his early life. And in so doing, he told us that he knew and was a friend of the nun, Mary Drexel, who was canonized on October 1st in the year 2000. The mayor didn't know it, but Mary and you-know-who share a birth date. Both were born on November 26th. Before refreshments were served, I went to see the mayor. I couldn't resist. Mr. Mayor, that's how I refer to him. Mr. Mayor, you've made my day. I, a Jew, and I am less than the proverbial three degrees of separation away from a Catholic saint. Can you believe it? I am only two degrees away. I never would have believed that was possible. Who would have thunk it? I can't wait to tell everyone I know how close you and I are to a saint. He smiled, he laughed, and we hugged. Hi, I'm Melinda Gordon, and this is Epistle to a New Order, as read by me. I wonder what would happen if the people who are scoring and deciding for us all who is stylish, who is boring, lost their pencils and their pens, threw away their calculations, and just let the world revolve by instinctive activations. What a joy, I think, to see labels stripped and lying bared, showing differences between us not self-consciously impaired, but celebrated, making special every nuance, every twist, hence to become big shiny pavers toward a blissful coexistence. Sharing, laughing, mingling with those never in our circles, now within the reach of all, whether green or blue or purple, Just think of all the combos we could make with co-creation. There's nothing we'd not conquer in our blended happy nation. A dream? A joke? Some madness? Well, sir, I beg to differ. I can picture it, can't you? And it's calling us. Come hither. 
intoxicating in the depth of what can happen when we cast aside our differences and start out once again. Don't miss the boat. Don't miss the flight. Don't miss the big migration. Together we can shed the skins from stifled generations. It can be done. I promise that. And your important part is taking this for truth and into your kind heart. Hi, my name is Barb Stakes, and this is my story called Angel, as read by me. I hoped for dawn. The edge of sleep had moved out further, feathered and disappeared like smoke. The eyes in my mind opened wide again. I had to start all over again. Drifting once more, a voice called me to relaxation. But no, the sound was soft, but it wasn't the sound of a dream. The yellow-green numbers of my clock said 307. Lifting my head, I waited. Just as I was about to concede to my imagination and fall back onto the pillow, I heard it again. I got up and shivered as I grabbed my robe and shuffled into slippers, resigning that sleep would not be visiting me this night or even this morning. From the living room window, I could see the intersection, quiet and serene under the street light. There'd been no bang or screech of tires. So what was it? There again, I heard it soft. I cracked the front door and strained my ear against the distance as if the quiet were the noise. The intonation was not of emergency, but of need, the persistence of one word. Finally, a girl's voice, Bob, Bob. She used all of her vocal strength to call loudly, yet it wasn't. I went out on the front steps. From the darkness, the voice materialized with the white of a t-shirt. An apparition, a child. She looked 14. At three in the morning, I wondered at my senses. Are you okay? I asked. Her answer was not yes or no, but an explanation. My boyfriend left me. He made me get out of the car. I don't know where I am. A child, left by the side of the road by probably a drunken boyfriend in the middle of the night. It was surreal. Swinging my arms, I pointed into the living room. You can come in and call your parents. My husband says I'm much too trusting, and I'd spit the words out too quickly. Now I wondered if this were a ruse and Bob was actually crouching in the bushes. I don't live with my mother. She lives in Philly. She doesn't have a car. Another summation that eliminated a string of my own questions. She was dressed in jeans and a sleeveless t-shirt with no jacket. The early morning chill didn't seem to affect her while I, cold and polytech, 
was grateful for the stillness of the October wind. The click and whoosh of the heater made me want the warmth of the indoors even more. Is there anyone else you can call? My words began to jump with my shiver. I can call my mom. I didn't understand. Well, please, I said, come in and use the phone. Okay, finally giving a sort of yes-no answer. I shivered again with the thought of Bob as my sight tried to penetrate the bushes. I couldn't exactly leave her standing in the cold, I told my husband and the police officer that filed the report in my imagination. I was quick to lock the door against the cold and anything else. As she'd passed me in the doorway, I noticed a soft roundness above her low-cut jeans. Her legs, beyond a healthy slender, gave her the false impression of tallness. Can you come get me, she said into the phone without giving her name. Can you give directions to my mom, she asked. I began to understand that mom was different from mother. Hesitantly, I gave directions to another stranger in the night. It was nearly 3.30 a.m. I was an unsure hostess. I began by offering tear milk. Finally, I made Angelina, Angel for short, she said, a cup of hot water chocolate and got out the Oreos. Thin elbows rested on the table. Her arms, so slight, reminded me of baby bird's wings, and her hands fluttered with expression as she talked. Delicate fingers took up the cup. Her hands were clean. Her nails were plain. Her dark brown hair, shining natural under the light, was parted in the center and hung straight and shoulder length. Her complexion was clear and soft, but the pale of her skin was less than her natural shade, as gray hinted under blue eyes. The warmth of the ceramic must have prompted a chill as she shook. Let me get you a sweater. I reined in my haste that she might suspect insulting pity. She pushed her hair behind ears that experts would have deemed too large for beauty but a rarity of manner produced loveliness that made beauty cliché and insignificant. She told me an encapsulation of her thus far history. She spoke with ease of how she'd been in foster homes since she was eight. My biological mother is an alcoholic. I was born alcohol-dependent. I now understood her delicate limbs. My mother really loves me. She's just sick and can't take care of me. She paused, but it didn't sound like afterthought when she repeated, my mother really loves me. I believed her. I've been in a lot of homes, she said, her meaning for a home different from mine, and the realization sunk in that she basically had no home. She searched my face to discern if I could be trusted, and deciding I could, added, this last one I ran from. I suspected that she had good reasons for running, but felt intrusive to ask. As I was considering this, 
She went on to explain that Bob had picked her up and brought her to the bar. You know the one around the corner? I nodded. Yes, it's the main cause of accidents around here. He got mad because I wouldn't drink. I can't drink. She'd been resting her hand on the roundness of her bare belly. So when he got drunk, we fought about it in the car and he told me to get out. He says I don't know how to have fun. All the while, I had hoped that I'd guessed wrong. A child about to give birth to another child. Do you go to school? I was hoping to learn that authorities were helping her through life. I got suspended. Some girl Janice stole $10 from me and started to hit me when I asked for it back. She paused as if to gather strength to continue. The school didn't want to, but the counselor thought it would be best for me to stay home. For a while, they said. It would be in my best interest, they said. That's when I called Bob to pick me up. The school didn't call your foster parents? My mind, exhausted, was now recharged, and I opened my mouth, ready to tirade against another of humanity's injustices. But I stopped, realizing she understood the irony more than me. Her situation, controlled by well-intentioned inadequacies. Any philosophical debate would only be injurious and absurd. I just shook my head. I ran cold with the thought of Bob and the probability of her future. Scant, satisfying moments between long stretches of simple survival. I vacillated between sympathy and admiration for this girl, this child. Somehow, some way, get an education that will take care of you and your baby was the best I could offer her. She nodded, her smile weak and tired. I was happy that my minuscule bit of advice was conceded. Can I lie down? I'm so tired. She lay on the couch, refusing a cover. She closed her eyes, and I was glad that she felt secure and trusting. I watched out the window, wondering, could I have set her on a better course in life while we waited for her ride? Could I have given her even a couple years' instructions in 20 minutes? My mind swirled with the impossibilities. But then, how could I offer advice for that which I had no real grasp and therefore no true wisdom? But I was hopeful of her inherent intelligence and that this someone on her way cared enough that a better life was possible. When the woman's car drove into the driveway, I barely heard the engine, but Angel did, and rushed out of the door. I stood on the porch, not noticing the cold. The cliché was real. They fell into each other's arms, she and this woman, her mom. Whether they were or were not bound by blood or court didn't matter. The woman mailed, thank you. Call me if you ever need anything. My weak offer lost on her ears as I realized I never thought to give her my number. As they pulled out of the driveway, I was grateful to her mom, realizing how few existed. It was not happy waves, but strangely satisfying.
I sank into the softness of an overstuffed chair just delivered last week. What took place here, I wondered. Why should such an event visit me, of all people who do not believe in God? I gained more than I offered that morning. Looking at the cute things and isn't that so sweet statuettes filling my living room, my stuff suddenly felt flimsy. Silk flowers and expensive baskets flagrant. The ridiculousness of having so much of nothing when getting by was a matter of fact for the vastness of angels. Hi, this is Paul Camerata, and this is Hippity Stoppity, as read by me. The life of Peter Cottontail would not have been the same if leather was the fabric at the start of his last name. Picture Naugahyde or Burlap, where cotton's always been, and how Pete's kid softlap snapshot biz that would so badly spin. How would Pete be received as satin tail or denim tail? Would then on a motorbike he ride the bunny trail? If pastel egg deliveries came from Pete polyester, around Easter the sketchy feels might every springtime fester. Yes, the life and times he's mastered might have truly faltered if Peter Cottontail's tailor, his name had even slightly altered. Hi, this is Rich Hosek. What is more satisfying than delicious candy and cakes, chewy caramel, and sweet chocolate? Why, vengeance, of course. I hope you'll enjoy my story, Sweet Revenge, as read by me. Welcome to Gingerbread House Confections. Can I interest you in some of our fine licorice? The annoyingly cheerful woman behind the counter asked. We have black licorice, red licorice, licorice twists, licorice laces, licorice nibs, licorice gum, licorice jelly beans. No, said the short balding man with thick dark rimmed glasses and a bushy mustache. I do not want licorice. How about some nice caramels then, she offered. We have hard candy caramels, soft caramels, chewy caramels, salted caramels, sea salt salted caramels, chocolate covered caramels, caramel covered chocolates. No, I do not want any caramels either. Perhaps a nice truffle. We have maple walnut, dark chocolate key lime, strawberry cheesecake truffles, peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly, caramel peanut butter, coconut cream, caramel cream, raspberry cream, cookies and cream, cookie dough. Please, I am not here to buy candy, the man insisted. Oh, of course, I should have guessed a man of your bearing would be looking for a delicious gourmet cookie. We're famous for our gingerbread, as I'm sure you know, but we also have snickerdoodles, oatmeal raisin, chocolate chip, chocolate chocolate chip, white chocolate chip, oatmeal butterscotch, lemon coolers, lemon crisps, lemon snaps. I am not here to buy candy, cookies, cakes, or confections of any kind, the man pronounced officiously. He opened the satchel that was slung over his shoulder and fished out a sheet of paper. Your establishment is overdue for a health inspection. It is, she asked. It is, the man answered. The portly woman perched the reading glasses, hanging on a chain around her neck, upon her porcine nose, and looked at the paper. After a moment, she spun it around so it was right side up for her. I had no idea I was supposed to arrange an inspection, she said. You're not. All inspections are scheduled by the health department. Then it's you who is overdue. The man snatched back the paper and stuffed it into the satchel. Unfortunately, 
there appears to have been a bit of paperwork mishandling at the home office. But it doesn't matter who is overdue. The fact is that this establishment is out of compliance. Yes, but I didn't know that. How could I be out of something I didn't know I wasn't in? That makes no sense. Even if you didn't know you are not responsible for scheduling the inspection, a responsible business person would be aware of the status of all licensure and other municipal obligations, and as such should reach out to the governing agency to remedy the deficiency. Is there a number I can call, if this happens again in the future? No, there is not. We had to turn it off. Telemarketers and calls from online pharmacies kept filling up the answering machine. So how am I supposed to attempt to remedy the deficiency? You could write a letter, the man suggested. To which address? The address on the letter. Which letter? The letter I just showed you explaining that you are out of compliance. But I never received that letter, and you took it back from me. Yes, well, I should have done that. Regardless, I didn't actually receive the letter that had the address on it that I could have written an inquiry to if the letter had arrived before I was out of compliance. Be that as it may, the man said. There was a pause. Be that as what may, the woman asked. Excuse me? When someone says, be that as it may, they follow it with something that should have been done regardless of the original situation. No, they don't. Yes, they do. Everyone does, the woman insisted. I don't, he replied. Then I stand corrected. Because you are certainly part of everyone, and if you say you don't say anything after, be that as it may, my assertion that everyone does was certainly incorrect. I'm sorry. Apology accepted. Thank you. You're welcome. There was another long pause. Are you sure you wouldn't care for some licorice? Red licorice isn't technically licorice, but we call it that anyway, since even though it's not at all the same flavor, it looks similar, apart from the color, that is. No, the man insisted. I really must tend to this oversight expeditiously. Well, don't let me stand in your way. Madam, you are quite literally standing in my way, he said, indicating that she was blocking the door to the kitchen with her wide girth. Oh my, she said, moving away from the entrance, but then stepped back in front of the swinging door. I'm sorry, but could I see your identification? My identification? Do you have a badge or something? You could be anyone. Well, I couldn't be anyone. How would I know? I couldn't be Mel Gibson. Of course not. You don't look anything like Mel Gibson. He's much taller. My point is, you tend to make statements that are overly broad exaggerations. We are not starting off on the right foot. I see your point. I should hope so. So, do you have a badge? Or some sort of laminated card? The man opened his satchel again and dug through the contents. Eureka! he shouted when he had found a hard plastic card holder, holding a card that was also plastic, that had a tiny photo resembling the man, though without the glasses and mustache and more hair. He showed it to the woman. Satisfied? he asked. That doesn't really look like you. It's an old photograph. So he took the plastic card holder and studied the card within it carefully, holding it up so that she could compare the image with the man in front of her. I guess that could be you. There's a very good chance of that, since I was the one who sat for the photograph. Your name is Grimm? she asked, curious. Yes, it is. Any relation? To what? The brothers. Which brothers? The brothers Grimm. Never heard of them, the man said. Really? That's peculiar. Ev... You were going to say, everyone's heard of them, weren't you? The man accused. I was not. I was going to say, Ev, a nice day. I haven't finished my inspection. I'm an optimist. The man sighed with frustration, then pushed his way through the swinging door into the kitchen. 
snatching the plastic cardholder back from the woman's pudgy grip as he did so. The kitchen was enormous. Mr. Grimm paused to rummage through the contents of his satchel until he found a clipboard. He leafed through the papers that were held fast by the metal clip at the top, making sure he had all the required forms at hand. This is quite a large facility. How many people work here? he asked. Oh, it's just me, the woman replied. Grimm lowered his head and peered up at the smiling confectioner over the top of his dark-rimmed glasses. You make all of this? he asked, waving his hand toward the racks of candies and cookies and cakes and cream puffs. Oh, yes, I love to bake and make candy. It's quite a passion of mine. Over here we have donuts, both filled and frosted. There is where I pull the taffy. Each piece is stretched 1,000 times. That's the secret to perfectly chewy taffy. And, of course, the cupcakes are quite popular. We have over 100 flavors. Red Velvet, Black Forest, Orange Surprise, Lemon Surprise, Lime Surprise, Grapefruit Surprise, which is surprisingly popular. Mr. Grimm cut her off. How long have you owned this business? My goodness, it's been in the family forever. Forever is not an answer I can put down on my form, Grimm said sternly. In what year was this particular establishment put into service? I don't know precisely, but this expansion was done ten years ago. Fine, that will do for my purposes, he said, scribbling the information on the form as he walked through the maze of racks. He eyed the food, looking for any infractions. Everything looked spotless. He ran a finger along the underside of one of the racks, and it came up clean. He came upon a wall of ovens, one in the center having much greater proportions than the others. That is a very large oven. I have a lot of baking to do. I don't believe I've ever seen an oven of that scale. It was custom-made, the woman said proudly. Grimm walked up to the oven and pulled open the door. It was large enough to fit a person quite comfortably. He pulled out a penlight and shone it on the gleaming interior. Hmm, he said, as he exchanged the light for a pen and made some notes on his clipboard. Do you like your job, Mr. Grimm? the large woman asked. The small man peered at her. Excuse me? You seem to be very good at what you do, but do you enjoy it? It's a job, he replied. It's just that I can't imagine a little boy saying, I want to grow up to be a health inspector. I find the work very rewarding. I feel like in my small way, I'm just as important as a police officer or a firefighter, he said in a somewhat defensive tone. Oh, I have no doubt, the woman replied. Were your parents health inspectors as well? No, he said as he continued inspecting the giant mixing machines. They were teachers. Really? What did they teach? Literature he grumbled. And you've never heard of Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm? Grimm's fairy tales? They really are quite ubiquitous. Yes, so you've told me. I just thought with you having the same name, you would have some connection. Please, I have work to do here. What's in this cabinet? Those are the molds for the holiday chocolates. You know, Easter bunnies, Santa Claus, hearts and flowers. He opened the cabinet and looked over the molds, picking a few of them up and inspecting them carefully. Do you know anything about your grandparents? The woman asked. Grimm looked at her with a combination of annoyance and curiosity. Of course I knew my grandparents. What kind of question is that? I'm just curious as to where they were from. Perhaps there is a relation to the German authors. My grandfather Grimm's father was adopted. I'm sure apart from the name, there is no connection to these brothers you keep on about. Where do you store your perishable ingredients? The walk-in cooler is just over there, the woman replied, pointing to a gleaming stainless steel door. She followed the diminutive inspector as he walked toward the industrial-sized refrigerator. He was an orphan, your great-grandfather? Yes, he and his sister, Mr. Grimm replied. 
Now, can we stop this distracting inquiry into my genealogy and get on with the inspection? Of course, of course, the woman said. Whatever you need. I'm just curious by nature. And your name reminds me of a story from my own family. I'm sure that's quite interesting, but I really do need to finish my work. You do go on. Don't let me disturb you. It's quite a fanciful story anyway. Apparently, Wilhelm Grimm and his wife, Dorchen, adopted two young children who had murdered someone in my family. That is indeed quite fanciful, Mr. Grimm said, as he continued examining the eggs, milk, strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, gooseberries, peaches, plums, pears, pomegranates, and other assorted produce. The brothers then convinced everyone that the murder was actually self-defense. They even wrote a story about it, totally mischaracterizing the incident, claiming my relative had kept them prisoner and threatened to eat them. Can you imagine that? Outrageous! The truth of the matter was she was a maker of sweets as I am, and they had robbed her. So she simply kept them confined until a constable could be found to adjudicate the matter. This was back in 19th century Germany. It wasn't like you could pick up the telephone and ring the police. No, I don't suppose it was, Grimm said, as he finished with the refrigerator and made numerous marks on his clipboard. They even claimed she was a witch. Imagine that. Indeed, the man said absently, as he checked the electrical connections between the bank of blenders and food processors, arrayed on a gleaming counter. Well, in truth, she was a sort of witch, but not the sort who would eat children. More like a magician. In the kitchen, of course, <laughs> she added with a laugh as if it was the funniest thing anyone had ever said. Everything seems to be in order, the health inspector pronounced. I must commend you on keeping such a pristine kitchen. All of the refrigerated items are clearly labeled and dated. Your food preparation areas and equipment are clean. No signs of vermin or insects. And your ovens are spotless. He scribbled a few more notes on the forms and added his signature. I'm so pleased to hear that, the woman said. You know, I was afraid that someone else would come to do the inspection. Grimm paused as he was stuffing his clipboard back in his satchel. Pardon me? he asked. Well, Mary Ann, who works in your office, is a loyal customer. So when I asked her to misplace my paperwork so that my case would be escalated, I wasn't completely sure the task would be assigned to you. Do you mean to imply that you arranged for me to be the one to inspect your establishment? Whatever for? he asked. Why, your name, of course, Grimm. Mr. Grimm raised an eyebrow. I'm afraid I'm not quite following. It's simple, really. Your great-grandfather and his sister killed my sister, the woman accused. Your sister? he asked, incredulous. That's one of the benefits of being a witch. Longevity, she answered. Time. Time enough to track down the descendants of the miscreants who murdered my dear sister, burned her alive in her own oven. Grimm looked at her for a long moment. Then he smiled and began to laugh. <laughs> you almost had me there, he said. I thought for a second that you were going to stuff me into your oversized oven as vengeance. <laughs> he laughed again. Oh, that is quite rich, quite amusing. I get it now. Gingerbread house confections, just like the house the witch lived in in the story. Which story? <laughs> Hansel and Gretel, he said, still chuckling. I thought you said you've never heard of the Brothers Grimm. The man stopped laughing. He clutched his satchel. It's taken me over a century to track you down, the woman said, the jolly demeanor evaporating, replaced by a dark, sinister expression that gave the small man chills. Grim is a much more common name than you would imagine, and it took me a while to discover that your grandparents had emigrated from Germany to America. 
This is such a big country to find such a small man in. She waved her hands, and bolts slammed into place, locking the swinging door, while metal shutters rolled down over the windows, sealing them in the large kitchen. The lights dimmed. Then the large oven roared to life, casting an eerie glow into the darkened room. And now, the woman said, tightening her apron strings and pushing up her sleeves, I shall finally get the justice my dear sister deserves. You are the last descendant of those vile children. There shall be no one of your line left to terrorize us poor witches. The witch, despite her size, was quick and strong. As Grim made a dash for the door, she reached out and grabbed one of his arms, then pulled him back to her and got a hold of his other arm, grabbing him so he was facing away from her, lifting him up so his feet dangled a foot off the ground. But I had nothing to do with whatever happened to your sister. I'm innocent, Grim pleaded. Well, since your great-grandfather and his scheming sister are long since past, you'll have to do, she said without a hint of remorse. Certainly we can work something out, Grim said. It was a long time ago. You have a successful business. Murdering me could adversely affect your business plan. Honestly, I'll be glad to be rid of this shop. I only set it up so I could contrive a situation where it could ensnare you and bestow upon you the fate your ancestors earned. You've been waiting ten years for me to come inspect your shop? he asked, wriggling as best he could to no avail. Yes, it's been difficult being so nice and cheerful all these years. Baking and making confections was actually my sister's passion. Once I finished you off and avenged her, I'll be able to return to my previous vocation. What was that? Grim asked, curious even as she carried him closer to the waiting oven. Mostly potions, casting a sleeping spell on an unsuspecting princess from time to time. That sounds fascinating, the little man said, the panic rising in his voice. I'd love to hear all about it, he added, hoping to stall for time. The witch nodded at the oven and the doors swung open. A wave of heat hit Grim directly in the face. Sorry, but your time is up, she said. She lifted him higher and pushed him feet first toward the waiting inferno. Grim waited until he was inches from the door, then pulled back his legs and shot them out so that his feet landed above the oven, causing him to flip over the witch, twisting out of her grasp and landing behind her. She was surprised that the little man was so agile. Do you really think you can escape? she asked. Yes, I quite expect I will, Grim said, as he launched a sidekick at her ample buttocks causing her to stumble forward into the oven. He quickly grabbed her ankles and shoved her inside the cavernous cooking chamber, then slammed the door shut. He looked around and grabbed the steel ladle and slipped it through the door handles, effectively locking her inside. What have you done? The witch cried from inside the oven. Let me out! Let me out right now! My grandfather warned me about you, Grim said. He made sure I was trained in martial arts in case I ever found myself in this situation. To be honest... I thought he was a little crazy. The witch ranted and raved for a little while longer before she finally fell silent. Grim removed the clipboard from his satchel. Oh my, human remains in the oven. I'm afraid you failed your inspection after all, he said. Hi, this is Melinda Gordon, and this is Bunny Ears as read by me. My mother gave me wisdom to appreciate each day. Household chores are nice, she said, but not when in the way of things that make your heart sore and whatever makes you tick. You'll find that taking care of you will help the rest just click.
tie your shoes in bunny ears. It's easy and it's quick. It leaves more time to read or play or dance or sing or pick a little patch of soft green grass right there in your front yard to share with nature's wonders. Life is short. Why make it hard? Always color inside lines until you've got it right. Then jump on out from in those lines and let your wings take flight. Be proud of who you are and let the world know you're unique. If everybody was the same, our world would be so bleak. Honor older people and listen when they speak. Make sure you have room in your heart when company they seek. Learn what makes them special, what they've seen and what they've done. Ask them how they've lived their lives and what they did for fun. Do your best work every day for fun or livelihood. And when your day is over, know that what you did was good. When you're tired, get some rest. There's no use to deny it. Overdoing causes stress, so please don't even try it. Gather at the table as a family every night and settle all your differences before you shut the lights. Find your joy and share it with the company you keep. And say, I love you to the world before you go to sleep. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Johnny Cork for Brains Goes Green, as read by me. Johnny Cork for Brains wanted to do his part to help dear Mother Earth, but he didn't know where to start. The word I hear people say lots is renewable, but never when it comes to something that is chewable. What's something eatable to take in this green direction? Perhaps a sweet tooth tickler, an eco-smart confection. While he ruminated, John on peanut butter snacked, his spoon between his mouth and jar, returning up and back. Then all at once it struck, the answer's in my hand. And grabbing pen and paper, Johnny sketched his planet plan. Scoop yourself some yummy stuff, then dip your spoon again. Congrats, you just helped save a bit of this old globe, my friend. Because this is no plain dessert, the kind you eat then stop. No, this is the green heaven scent, renewable lollipop. Like regrown crab or lobster claws, shark teeth or centipede feet, it's the perpetual motion machine of candy, the solar power of sweets. Maybe smeared with peanut butter, then in chocolate morsels coated, a one-handed candy snack that can always be reloaded. In love with his plan like always was Johnny Cork for Brains, and how now nature and taste buds would both by the spoonful gain. A simple recipe by which the sweet train needn't stop. A gift from Johnny to our world. The Renewable Lollipop. Hi, I'm Melinda Gordon, and this is the day I learned who I am, as read by me. Today is Wednesday, April 22nd, 1970, and I'm not in school. Instead, 
I'm sitting in the passenger seat of my friend Ted Galanti's dad's car, riding toward Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. The back seat is filled with our other two friends, Larry and Dave, and a whole bunch of snacks and jackets and umbrellas and thermoses that our moms made us take just in case we might need them. It's a little stuffy in the car with the fresh air being replaced by the teenage sense of anticipation, sneakers, and gum. I'll be 15 in a month, but the boys are already 16, so they can drive. We all have permission slips with us from our parents and our 10th grade world cultures teacher in case anybody wants to know why we're not in class. My dad said that there might be a lot of policemen there and that we should steer clear if we can. These days, he said, the police are not always friends to teenagers or people who look different than them. Our teacher, Mr. Pezza, said the same thing, but in more careful words when he taught us about sit-ins and protests and activism. I'm allowed to go to this because my parents want me to be an active citizen. You should always be a supporter of good causes and good people, they said. I'm trying, but sometimes other kids think I'm a weirdo for even talking about current events and making changes in the world. Those kids are more interested in dating and sports and parties and so on, but I'm not, mostly because, well, I'm 14. Today, we're going to a teach-in. It's important work, and I'm excited. I'm jumping around in my seat a little, and I feel kind of sick. It's really happening. We're on our way, and we'll be there soon. I'm singing along with the radio, trying to swallow the lump in my throat. I have a little suede pouch full of dimes for the phone, $20, paper and pencils, and a list of phone numbers in my green army bag. I'm wearing bell-bottom jeans, a paisley shirt, and fringe moccasins. My Cinderella watch is in the bag, too. I'm prepared. Suddenly, we're in a long line on a sandy, dusty road. At the end of the road is a huge parking lot, almost all filled up with cars, campers, trucks, you name it. Some have banners or flags attached to them, and some have painted sayings right on the cars. Crowds of people are passing us, all different ages, different colors, smiling, carrying guitars, holding posters, holding hands. It's a beautiful blend heading toward a common goal. Today, we're going to learn how to save the earth. Swept up in the rainbow of color, sounds, and scents, we're flowing into the park, and I get the mystical, magical knowledge that there's something wonderful happening. My eyes are wide, my brain is humming, and my heart is pounding. Music is everywhere. There are booths set up all around, people selling buttons and crafts and posters, groups sitting in circles having discussions, musicians playing and singing, artists creating. There's a calming feel in the air, along with the wonderful smells of cooking and patchouli and something else that I don't know. But together... It all forms a light purple concoction of a feeling that I really want to be part of. I'm so curious, and my goal today is to learn not only about the environment, but about the people. My brain is exploding, and I know that I'm staring rudely, but I can't help it. A song breaks out in my head, almost bringing me to tears. Beautiful people, you live in the same world as I do. 
but somehow I never noticed you before today, I'm ashamed to say. Walking around some more, I'm learning and gathering information and buying buttons and talking to older kids, college kids and adults. They're very gentle and kind and seem happy to answer questions without getting impatient. Excuse me, what? Allen Ginsberg is reading at the podium? Point me that way, please. Ralph Nader is speaking? If I was old enough to vote, I'd vote for him. I pin a campaign button onto my bag right next to the little one with the green and white logo on it and move on. I'm floating now. The disc jockey in my head has changed the record. Do you believe in magic in a young girl's heart? How the music can free her whenever it starts? And it's magic if the music is groovy. It makes you feel happy like an old-time movie. I'll tell you about the magic. It'll free your soul. But it's like trying to tell a stranger about rock and roll. Time has passed way too quickly, and it's almost time for me to meet my friends to head home. Our parents didn't want us on the highway at rush hour. I don't want to leave. I want to run away with this beautiful circus. My friends are exactly where we agreed to meet. They seem tired and ready to go, but there's a keynote speaker and we'll miss him. Come on, guys. I have no choice but to follow them and maybe hope to see Senator Muskie on TV later. My parents would be interested too. So now I'm dragging my dusty, dirty moccasins through the field on our way out, but I can't stop looking back. There they are, the people that are going to change the world. I'm going to do it too. I'll be a teacher and I'll be kind and open and encouraging and I'll never say no to a new idea. I want to stand on the top of a hill and shout, I'm Melinda Patrice Borak, and these are my people. But I do it in my head. I don't want to talk on the way home. My eyes are closed, and I'm dreaming, but I'm not sleeping. The background music for my dreams today plays softly against the slideshow of what I've seen and heard. Harmony and understanding, sympathy and trust abounding, no more falsehoods or derisions, golden living dreams of visions, mystic crystal revelation, and the mind's true liberation. Aquarius, Aquarius, the first Earth Day, April 22nd, 1970. I will never stop honoring it. Hi, this is Mike Archer. This is a piece from my blog, thearcherjournal.com, called Shoot to Kill, as read by me. The bald eagle, our national bird, is everywhere. It's on the Great Seal of the United States. It was adopted as the emblem of the country in 1787. It's on every $1 bill, coins, and passports. It's up there with the flag, Liberty Bell, and Statue of Liberty, as a universal symbol of American strength. It has been a sign of government authority since the Roman Empire. The bald eagle has survived despite man's carelessness that almost wiped it out of existence. Overdevelopment into their natural habitat, 
hunting, and pesticides made them an endangered species for years. The number of adult breeding bald eagles in the United States and Canada has dropped by 2.9 billion since 1970. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962 led to the banning of the pesticide DDT 10 years later. It was not only killing animals like the bald eagle, but contaminating soil and water for decades. Conservation efforts have increased the bald eagle population from just 417 nesting pairs in 1963 to more than 71,000 nesting pairs and an estimated 316,000 individual birds in the lower 48. But there is something that is threatening that population, lead bullets. A recent story by the Philadelphia Inquirer reported on a Cornell study published in the Journal of Wildlife Management that shows lead ingestion by bald eagles has reduced their population growth every year by 6% for males, 4% for females. The study covers 30 years. The study was done in seven northeastern states, including New Jersey. Pennsylvania ranks number six in the country in gross cost for hunting licenses. So if you can't hunt bald eagles, how do they get lead poisoning? When hunters kill their prey, they often field dress their kill and leave some remains behind that are contaminated by the lead bullets. Even the remains of animals like raccoons and groundhogs shot with lead bullets can cause lead poisoning on the bald eagles that feed on the remains. There is a solution, copper bullets. They are just as effective. Some hunters argue they are more expensive. But there are hunters who want to solve the problem. The website huntingwithnonlead.org promotes the benefits of copper bullets over lead. You may be asking, why should we care? Two years ago, I wrote about how the federal government issued a clarification of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. It eliminated criminal penalties for incidental deaths of migratory birds that happened in the course of normal business. The government stopped investigating bird deaths. According to a New York Times investigation, as long as a company or local government doesn't mean to kill the birds as a result of developments, it's okay. With a new administration, the Interior Department revoked these ridiculous changes last October. Protecting the environment is one of the critical issues facing us all. Denying an obvious problem or not caring will not make it disappear. Rachel Carson warned us decades ago. She said, The road we have been traveling is deceptively easy, a smooth superhighway in which we progress with great speed, but in its end lies disaster. The other fork of the road, the one less traveled by, offers our last, our only chance to reach a destination that assures the preservation of the earth. When we shoot to kill, we must understand the consequences. Hello, my name is Peter Waits, and this is a story, The Looks Women Give to Men, as read by me. It goes like this. The looks women give to men all have a hidden meaning. And it was only after endless clueless days, weeks, months, and years that I have finally been made privy to them. So you can avoid the bewilderment and suffering I have gone through, I'm going to share with you what I have learned about the looks. When a woman first meets a man, if she thinks he's attractive, 
She gives him glances, hoping that he will recognize that she wants to meet him. She doesn't know it, but she's wasting her time. Men are not intuitive. Men aren't mind readers. Men don't recognize subtle glances. They will only end up on a date if A, he notices her on his own, and B, he finds her attractive and he finds the courage to approach her, or B, if someone else directs his attention to her and he finds her attractive and he finds the courage to approach her, and C, he doesn't make an ass of himself if and when he does approach her. If they date, her initial looks are almost fawning. She appears to be hanging on his every word. Her looks say that he's brilliant. Her looks say that he's everything a woman could ask for. She is throwing herself at him, and he doesn't know it. Men don't recognize endless smiles as interest. At this early time in their relationship, everything he says is profound. Later, even if he tells her the time of the day, the week, the month, she'll express doubt. This phase lasts only until they have had sex. Then reality sets in. After that occurs, the frequency of the smiles diminish as she recognizes that he is fallible. I mean, she'll continue dating him only if she feels he is workable, if he has the potential to be made into the male image of her. From this point on, without his knowledge or permission, but with passion, she takes on the role of being his mentor. She corrects his speech and his manners, but she is wasting her time because he isn't going to change. He's not going to turn into a her with a penis. Now she gets frustrated. She feels free to unleash the look, but she has wasted it. He's clueless. He's simply happy he has a steady date for Saturday night. A few home-cooked meals, he doesn't have to do the dishes after he eats. He can fart, and he can get laid without laying out too much money. At this stage in the relationship, the looks she gives him have become serious, and she can't figure out why he doesn't understand them. She doesn't give up on him. She just assumes that he, like all men, are morons, but that she is smart enough and patient enough to train him. She convinces herself that she can, and she convinces him that it is time to get married. Newlyweds have a lot to learn. At the extremes are those that do learn just before their death, and those that don't, well, they don't. Most married people are in the middle. In other words, most are slow learners, Women think men will learn quickly. They will learn to understand the nuances of the look. And men are forever wondering, what the hell was that look all about? I was reminded of this last week when you know who and I took our grandchildren, Joshua and Jason, to a park. Joshua was on a regular swing and Jason was in the basket-type swing so that he wouldn't fall out when pushed. Next to Jason, in a similar-type swing, was a boy probably around 12 months old. And his parents... They were watching what was going on. The father's name was Steve, and I only know this because I heard his wife call him that. Among gleeful shouts of, higher, higher, I was pushing Jason. Actually, I stood in front of him and caught his legs as he came toward me. I held him for an instant, and then I pushed hard. He loved it. I pushed Joshua the same way, and he too loved it. Steve wanted to push his younger than Jason's son as high as Jason was going, and he gave a mighty push. His wife didn't feel her son was ready to go that high, and she did what wives tend to do. She didn't say anything. She gave Steve the look. From the look on Steve's face, he knew he was in trouble, but it was obvious that he had no clue that the look he got meant that she didn't approve of her son going that high. So he pushed his son again. 
She gave him another look. What? What? He said. The look morphed into speech. In an icy tone, spoken with attitude, she said, We'll talk about it later. To emphasize her displeasure, she paused between it and later. We'll talk about it later. Even though she wasn't talking to me, I too felt the chill. For the newlyweds and slow learners, let me explain what had happened. The first look was a warning not to do what he was doing again. When he failed to understand the silent communication, he got the follow-up look, which was her way of saying, I married a moron. She flashed it to him when she said they would talk about it later. As soon as they were alone, I am sure she talked to him. She told him it was unsafe to push their baby so high. He was, according to her, endangering their son. From experience, I know that his response was either to be silent, that's if he was smart, or to say, what is she talking about? The United States has had a program called SETI, S-E-T-I, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They've had it for about 25 years. We have powerful antennae carefully listening for a signal from outer space that there is other intelligent life in the universe. So far, we've heard nothing. According to all women, they have been listening for thousands of years for signs of intelligent life on this planet, and they too have heard nothing. So if you want your relationship to last, if you want a few home-cooked meals and want to get laid, I offer you what Judge Judy told the man appearing before her. When you wake up in the morning, look at your wife and tell her that you love her. At night before you go to sleep, look at your wife and tell her you're sorry. Don't worry about the particulars. She'll fill them in. It is obvious that during the day, Judge Judy and all wives give their partners the look. The best we men can do is to apologize so we can get on with our lives. It's not a question of being right or wrong. It's about the accuracy of an old joke that I heard a long time ago. It goes like this. Confucius say, men who fight with wife all day have no peace at night. Hi, this is Paul Camerata, and this is Reseeding the Weeding, as read by me. Standing in the window, we saw out in the yard, Dad crouching and appearing to be thinking very hard. Before him lay the lawn, which he ran both his palms through. Then he stood and snapped his fingers, like he knew just what to do. Kids, congratulations, he said walking in the door. To the list of gifts we're blessed with, go ahead and add one more. That rug of yellow flowers we've always viewed with alarm is now the answer to the question, where's your dandelion farm? How close I came to mowing it, how lucky that I stopped. How fortunes may have turned if I'd plowed our major crop. No dandelion tinctures, lost dandelion greens, zero dandelion wine, or dandelion diaper creams. It proves how working hard instead of smart can be a pox. Why battle dandelion growth when we've got it outfoxed? Now please excuse me, kids. This here farmer's had some day. The land can wear you down, you'll learn, if on our farm you stay. Chuckling loudly as he exited, Dad didn't hear us sighing or see us window squinting, picturing farming dandelions. Hi, this is Rich Osek. I have for you a love story of a sort called As the Tea Leaves, as read by me. What do I do next? I asked the impossibly old woman sitting in the chair opposite me. 
She wore a crocheted shawl and had her pure white wispy hair pulled up into a bun. Her skin looked like an elephant's, an elephant who had been in the bath too long. She was so devoid of muscle or fat that you could see the contours of her skull and skeleton through her fine wrinkled epidermis, like the crypt keeper on that old TV show. Her eyes were yellow, both the iris and the sclera, and her teeth, what remained of them, were of a similar tint, the space between them as black as the tea leaves she had used to prepare the beverage that she had carefully poured and set in front of me. Drink it, she replied, as if I was a complete and utter idiot. I lifted the ancient bone china cup to my lips and drank. The water was long past scalding, and the tea, without sugar or milk, was bitter and unsatisfying. All of it, the old woman ordered. I continued pouring the tepid tea into my mouth and swallowed it as quickly as I could. When I was done, I involuntarily shook my head like a baby who bit into a sour grape. I set the cup back into its matching saucer. Madame Palmfrit picked up the cup and stared into it. What does it say? I asked impatiently. Shh, she replied, not lifting her gaze from the tiny puddle of leftover tea and soggy leaf fragments in the bottom of my cup. I was not the type of person to seek advice from a psychic, whether they got the details of my love life and future from a deck of tarot cards, a crystal ball, or the dregs of an acrid liquid made from dried leaves. It wasn't my cup of tea. So what was I doing here? Ah, love makes you do crazy things. As someone, I can't remember exactly who at the moment, once said, most of the experiences Julia talked me into were beauty treatments of one sort or another. Sometimes it was the typical mud bath or avocado peel, but on other occasions we indulged in less traditional ablutions and rituals. Things like soaking in a vat of rancid olive oil mixed with pungent-smelling herbs, or having butter massaged into intimate places. But I didn't mind her unusual spa regimens, and even could stomach the occasional chick flick or vegan restaurant. At least we did those things together. About a week ago, while we were soaking our feet at a spa where a little fish nibbled the dead skin off your heels, Julia suddenly and forcefully insisted that I get my tea leaves red. You have to go, and you have to do everything she tells you, she told me, a serious look on her face that crinkled her brow. Sure, we'll go together, I suggested. It'll be fun. No, she almost shouted. She grabbed my arm, her nails digging deep into my flesh. You have to do it alone, and as soon as possible, or we have to break up seemed like a ridiculous ultimatum to base a relationship on, but, as I mentioned earlier, I was in love. So I assured Julia that I would arrange to see her tea leaf reader as soon as humanly possible. She breathed a sigh of relief, let go of my arm, and reclined. A small woman darted to her side from seemingly nowhere and placed two cucumber slices over her eyes. I did the same, pulling the lever that lowered the back of my chair, but the diminutive cucumber distributor looked at me with disdain and scurried off without adorning me with vegetables. The appointment was made by telephone. Madame Pomfrit did not have a website or email address, nor did it seem voicemail, or even an answering machine. Booking a session meant calling repeatedly at intervals during the day until she decided to answer. She gave me a time and day. There's no choice in the matter, no options to pick from. But, not surprisingly, she was psychic after all. It was an hour that I was free. Madame Pomfrit lived in the same neighborhood as Julia. How close Julia lived to the narrow brownstone, I didn't know, as I had never been invited to her apartment. She was perfectly happy coming over to my place, and to be honest, I liked that just fine. I never had to scramble to wake up early and get back to my place to shower and change, nor did I have to suffer the indignities of using a woman's bathroom. I always found the array of beauty products and devices that were used to crimp, straighten, and augment various features intimidating, and even frightening. I'd once witnessed a girlfriend deconstruct herself at the end of the day. 
The makeup was removed, creams applied, curlers entwined. It was a transformation akin to a human being turning into a werewolf, albeit one that smelled really good. Missing out on whatever rituals Julia performed to look as good as she did was a blessing from my point of view. Such things should always be a mystery to men. Madame Pomfrey's home reminded me of the Adams family. There were antiques everywhere. Some of them seemed like they were really valuable. There was a fine layer of dust over everything, so obviously there wasn't a seven-foot-tall butler taking care of the place. The house was extremely orderly and had a precision to it that actually made it all the more disturbing. She had greeted me at the door with an air of suspicion, as if I was there to sell her something. I told her my name and that I had an appointment. I know who you are and what you want, she said in a creaky voice. She sighed as if I was keeping her from doing something fun and interesting, like changing the doilies on her armchairs. This way, she said, and led me into a parlor, where she directed me to sit in a paisley upholstered chair, its legs ending in intricately carved claws. I sat down and watched her prepare the tea. She didn't use a tea bag or one of those mesh spheres where you can make your own blend of tea and herbs to suit your taste. She just scooped a mound of dried leaves into a teapot already filled with water. After a while, she poured the cup, and I could see the dark bits of dried fauna mixed in with the brownish-green liquid. Now she was staring at the pattern the leaves left in the bottom of my cup. I found myself eager to hear what she would discover about me and my future at its bottom. You're in love, she said. I wasn't impressed so far. Why else would a single guy come to an old crone to have his tea leaves read? She is very beautiful, she continued. Again, obvious, considering that I wouldn't be here if Julia wasn't totally out of my league. You are going to be married, she pronounced. Okay, that was interesting news. I had fantasized about a life with Julia, but the idea of marrying her seemed beyond my wildest dreams. Will we have children, I asked. Madame Pomfret looked up from her inspection of my deepest secrets and darkest future. It was the glare of a thousand librarians trained to silence noisy patrons with their steely gaze. I was suitably cowed by her yellow eyes and the way she pursed her thin lips. She returned that stilling stare to the tea leaves and continued divining my now and hereafter at the bottom of the delicate china cup. You must buy a house, a large house with at least four bedrooms, an attached garage, a modern kitchen, walk-in closet, and a bathroom with a heated floor. I must, I asked, instantly regretting saying anything, as the amber gaze shot out at me from under wrinkled eyelids. The engagement ring must be twenty-four carat gold, with at least a four-carat marquise-cut diamond, not cubic zirconium, with rubies and emeralds embedded in the band. Without thinking, I reached over to tilt the cup toward me. That seems awfully specific, I said. Before my fingers touched the china, Madame Pomfrit smacked them with her bony hand. It stung as if I had been hit with a wooden ruler. I pulled my hand back and rubbed the spot where she had struck me. Pay attention, she admonished. Your happiness depends on what I'm telling you. If you do not do these things, you will not be married, and you will spend the rest of your life alone and impotent. Why would I be impotent if I don't marry Julia? I asked, puzzled. Do you think this is a game? she required. I am telling you exactly what you need to do to find a bliss, and you question me? <laughs> I should just keep the rest to myself and let you wallow in sexless loneliness for the rest of your eunuchistic life. I sat very still and very quiet, hoping to earn the remaining revelations that were apparently essential to my happiness and my manhood. Madame Pomfrit made me wait in silence for nearly a minute before she dropped her eyes again and resumed sussing the keys to my contentment. Oh, my mistake. The ring must be five carats, she said, 
casting a quick glance to remind me what was at stake. My hands reflexively covered my groin. You will enroll in an MBA program, then get a job in management, eventually rising to CEO of a very successful company. Your wife will have a new car every year, a Tesla, the nice one. She pushed the saucer and its porcelain passenger back to the middle of the table. I sneaked a peek at the leaves littering the bottom of the cup, but didn't see any five-carat diamond rings or Tesla roadsters or walk-in closets there. If you are ready to do all of those things, you will find happiness. Are you willing to commit to this course for your future? I nodded enthusiastically. Madame Pomfrit smiled, and then she said to me kindly, Then go, make your lady happy, and you will be happy as well. I stood, grateful that the experience was over, but also oddly invigorated at the idea that I could be married to Julia. I was eager to go see her, and even more anxious to get out of Madame Pomfrit's eerily unsettling house. I bumped the small table that held the ancient tea set. The pot was perched on the edge and fell to the frayed rug covering the floor and shattered. My eyes went wide as I saw the broken china and the spilled tea soaking into the tattered rug. I quickly bent down to pick up the pieces, as if my quick action could somehow reverse the disaster. In my haste, I cut a deep gash into the palm of my hand. I cried out in pain, then stood, holding my hand in front of me as blood pooled in my palm. I, I'm sorry, I'll pay for it, I promised. The old woman didn't seem to hear me or care about the mess on her floor. Her jaundiced gaze was focused on my hand, or rather the red liquid quickly gathering there, threatening to run through my fingers and mix with the tea on the floor. She grabbed the cup that held the remnants of my tea, then gently tilted my hand so that the blood dripped into it. Her skin felt cold and papery like that of an onion. Shouldn't I put pressure on it or something? I asked, concerned that there was much more blood than I'd ever seen before. I started to feel lightheaded. She didn't answer me. Instead, she squeezed my hand, causing the flow of blood to increase until it was about an inch deep in the cup. She let go, not seeming to mind that I was dripping blood on her floor. Then she did something that nearly made me pass out. She drank my blood from the cup. I fell back into the chair, watching as she tilted her head back so that she could extract every drop of my precious bodily fluids from the vessel cupped in her bony hands. When she could drink no more, she dropped the cup and it shattered next to the teapot. Her lips were red, coated in my blood, and somehow fuller. As I watched, she underwent a transformation. Her posture straightened, her hair darkened and thickened, her skin tightened, and her breasts became firm and full. Her grayish pallor was replaced by a rosy glow. Her eyes brightened and took on a familiar blue hue. Julia? I asked in shock. The young, vibrant, attractive woman I was madly in love with looked at me and smiled. Sorry, she said. You weren't supposed to see this part. Are you... are you a vampire? I asked. Oh, heavens no, nothing like that, she replied. Just think of it as another of my beauty treatments. It's a hell of a treatment, I said. Not quite the same level as a dead sea salt exfoliant. Are you disappointed? she asked, wearing that sad little pouch she used to get pretty much anything she wanted from me. I'll start with surprise as hell. She grabbed a small towel from the table and pressed it in my hand. It's not really that big of a deal. I just need to drink human blood a couple times a month. I wanted to ask where she got it, but decided that was a question best left unanswered. I meant what I said, she whispered, moving her face closer to mine. I will marry you, if you get me a nice ring and a house and you get a better job. You will? I asked. I couldn't tell if it was the blood loss or the hypnotic effect of those sky-blue eyes, but I felt myself feeling serene and intensely happy. 
Of course. I love you, she promised. And the best part is, I will always be young and beautiful for you. Okay, I replied without much thought. She lifted the towel, now soaked through, and inspected the wound in my hand. Ooh, that is deep. We should probably get you to the hospital. Hospital, I repeated, feeling sleepy. You wait here. I'll go get changed, and then we'll get you stitched up and they go ring shopping. I know just the place. Julia dashed out of the room. I heard her footsteps running up some stairs. Then it sunk in. I was going to marry some ancient, blood-sucking succubus who would be eternally young and beautiful. And I was fine with that. In fact, I was surprised to realize I was happy, almost giddy at the idea of spending the rest of my life with Julia. How about that? The tea leaves were right. Hi, this is Melinda Gordon, and this is Bruiser, as read by me. There's a hole in my heart where he used to snuggle, right next to me, sometimes underneath my flannel nightgown when it was cold out, or he was feeling a little unsure about the big world he was now part of. Just five weeks old when he became a member of our family, the pet shop said he was eight weeks old, but we learned better as he became ours. A tiny little buff-colored boy with bright eyes, a white spot on his forehead, and hope in his heart. He opened his little mouth to speak, and a squeal came out that tore at every inch of me. This baby became our world in ways both strange and wonderful. He weighed only four pounds and smelled like popcorn, that miraculous scent of new life that makes us go weak in the knees when we cuddle our first puppy. His foot pads were bright pink, his nose light gray, not fully formed even, yet we would soon learn of the tragedies that had befallen him, and we would promise to try to make him whole again for the rest of his life. So little, so scared, so sweet, we named him Bruiser. Buying him at a pet shop was not the best idea, but we didn't know what everyone knows now about rescues and adoption. Besides, we had a seven-year-old who missed the two huge Irish setters, Casey and Dewey, who had been her first playmates and daily guardians. Kids and puppies, it's a magical connection. That first week, Tiny Bruiser followed us around, poking his little nose into everything and doing puppy things that we would never have tolerated from a big boy. He couldn't get into too much mischief, though, because he spent an awful lot of time getting carried around, even on top of laundry in the basket, and we kissed and hugged and treated him like a little prince among devoted subjects. At four o'clock every afternoon, he sat on the stairs with me and waited for his small human to come home from camp. He was really too tiny to run wild with or even to play fetch, which was probably good because Manon was usually too tired from camp to do much except ooh and ah over her new little buddy and take a nap with him on the couch before supper. At our first checkup, the vet shocked us by declaring him too young for his first shots, but proclaimed him a healthy baby, except for a distinct heart murmur. Aha! There it was. 
Dr. Newman explained that purebred pups who were less than perfect were very often harmed and left for dead among a box full of puppies who were being shipped to a pet shop. The pet shops could write off a loss of $25 for any pup found not alive after delivery, and the breeder would have been prepaid for the number of dogs in the box. Apparently, our little boy had survived. There was nothing we could do except take him home, love him, and be his family. So, sick to our stomachs over what we imagined might have happened to our baby, that's exactly what we did. At the beginning, he was quirky. He didn't like anybody to be next to him while he ate. He would growl at us over his bowl in a kind of adorable way, like a newborn lion cub. He would bare his miniature teeth and do the best to be a tough guy, and we would all giggle until we didn't. As he grew, Bruiser's behavior became more strange and less cute. He started nipping instead of just growling and gave no warning before he struck. Nipping turned to full-out biting and a couple of visits to the emergency room for me. He started commandeering our belongings, a tiny Snoopy beanbag toy, a golf ball, a shoe, and guarding them. He trained us very well to stay away from his things, and we didn't make it an issue. Time passed, and it was our behavior that changed instead of his. His hoarding became an obsession, as did his guarding behavior over anything and everything. When guests were visiting, we learned quickly to say, don't reach down, or something similar, to make sure their hands didn't become victims of our burgeoning little monster. Bruiser liked to be near us, but not picked up. He liked to be in the backyard, but wouldn't play. His disposition seemed sweet one minute, but he would snap into a rage the next. His health was excellent, and then one day he started having seizures. He repeated behaviors over and over. He attacked unprovoked, and he attacked more and more often. When he attacked, he looked like a wild beast and then would become a fluffy little guy immediately, with no seeming knowledge or recall of what had happened. Our friends and family members called us crazy, and we questioned our own sanity every day. When the topic of what to do was brought up, it was Bruiser and me against the world. I was so determined to make good on my promise to give him a good life that I wasn't even rational. I fought and cried and begged my way into earning him many more years than he probably may have gotten anywhere else. By a stroke of luck, we learned that the veterinary hospital at University of Pennsylvania had recently formed a behavior clinic. Our appointment was made and the whole family attended. The young doctors there were enthusiastic and eager to help us make Bruiser a better doggy. He was about six years old when we started his training. We became great at doing all the non-threatening exercises and Bruiser became about five pounds heavier from all of the cheese rewards that went along with the program. After realizing that we were well-trained and Bruiser was fat, the doctors recommended a neurologist who might be able to help. Soon, Bruiser became one of seven dogs who were in a clinical trial for the use of Prozac in dogs. We saw glimmers of progress, but the seizures were still frequent, and he had attacked a few times. After a while, we were disheartened and frustrated, for sure, 
but not defeated. The neurologist suggested doing an MRI so that she could have a better look at what, if anything, was going on with this guy. We agreed. The results were fascinating. Bruiser showed signs of blunt force trauma to his head and neck that had resulted in scar tissue and tumor-like formations on his brain, skull, and ear canals. That little head was full of hurt when it should have been full of happy puppy fun. A decision was made to have surgery, a total ablation, which meant that he would be deaf and would have no openings under his ears. He would either come out of it pain-free and relieved to feel better, or he would be confused and angry. We were prepared for both. After a long, long time, someone came to tell us that Bruiser was in recovery and doing well. We had no way of knowing how he would behave. We all went home that day with happy tears in our eyes and lots of medication and instructions. Our little guy was in the back seat of the car with rubber tubes hanging out of his tiny little holes in his neck and truly what I believe was a smile on his beautiful fuzzy face. Four years later, at the age of 11, he died of a blood disorder. In his lifetime, he taught us so much about the good and the evil that people are capable of, the horrors that no living being should ever endure, and the capacity to give love beyond what you ever imagined possible. He was a good boy with a tainted start. It was our job to give him the best life we could. We tried. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Jack Sniff, as read by me. Jack Sniff, with his nose, in he hails and out he blows, scent detecting far and wide. From Jack Sniff, no smell can hide. Hounds called Jack when they were, whelp, investigating and needing help. Jack would come and in a jiff, solve the case in just one whiff. Folks asked Jack, do you feel stuck? What I feel, he said, is luck. That sniffs my name, and as you see, smelling to me comes easy. Rivers versus themselves swimming have a hard time ever winning. That's why I, Jack Sniff, always stay with a heart that's full of play. Hello, this is Joyce Hadley, and this is Oliver Born to be Wild, as read by me. I should have realized when I went to meet Brittany Puppy, soon to be known as Oliver, that this breed was live-wired. Upon entering the breeder's home, I was immediately jumped on with great affection by two adult Brittanys. The dog's owner told me it was a good sign. She said it confirmed I was the right person who had come to select one of the three remaining puppies. It was love at first sight when I looked at puppy, soon to be known as Oliver. He was so wiggly, cute, and cuddly. His markings were just peeking through. Freckles about the muzzle, 
a patch of white hair traveling between his blue eyes, finally blending into the orange hair around his head and ears. Oh, how I wanted to take this little darling home, but the weaning process was not yet completed. Puppy, soon to be known as Oliver, was only five weeks old. So, when the call came from the breeder two weeks later to pick up Puppy, I stopped in my tracks and asked my sister to accompany me to the breeder's home. She agreed, and off we went, me giving her instructions on the way down I-95 on how to transport this precious cargo on the way home. I was very fortunate. Brittany Puppy was a birthday gift from my sister. I was forlorn over the death of my beagle, who died six months previously, and a new puppy would certainly brighten my world. When we arrived, after being jumped on again by adult Britneys, we went to the crate where Mother Brittany and remaining pups were huddled. I scooped up my new charge and held him gently. Ah, there's nothing like the smell of a little puppy. My sister and I said our goodbyes and set out for the return trip to my home. As I watched my sister holding puppy, soon to be known as Oliver, from my rearview mirror, I noticed the white patch markings on his head had spread quite a bit. On either side of the markings, the hair had grown into two points, resembling horns. Was this a sign? A few days later, once I'd had a chance to look over and try to get a feel for this new puppy's personality, it hit me like a lightning rod. Oliver, that's it. From here forward, little Brittany, you shall be known as Oliver. Fast forward, the first couple of months were filled with the normal, some of my friends thought otherwise, puppy behavior. Oliver dissected every to- toy Oliver dissected every toy I purchased for him, even those with the indestructible tag. I tried to make him comfortable at night, but after chewing nine dog beds, I gave up. He preferred my bed. It's a good thing this puppy behavior was pre-pandemic because I lost a lot of toilet paper. One morning, I heard a lot of scratching and running in the hallway. Oliver had managed to take almost the entire roll of toilet paper from the bathroom, down the hall and into the living room. The running sound was Oliver jumping into the piles of toilet paper and gathering as much as he could into his mouth. Oliver is a good sport. He loves being in the backyard with me while I do yard work. One spring day, as I was totally immersed in my yard duties, I noticed Oliver was missing. When I went to the other side of my house, the sight I saw was startling. There he was, front and back legs covered in mud, muzzle caked with mud, and the tips of both ears were brown instead of orange. It had rained overnight, the ground was soft and saturated, and Oliver took this opportunity to dig a two-foot trench. He looked rather comical, and I tried to refrain from laughing as I hosed him down. One thing I soon learned was to always make certain the latch was secure on the gate. When Oliver first had his chance to escape, it took me a half hour to catch him. He does not respond to commands. It means me getting in the car, riding around calling, Oliver, come here, sit down. Capture usually happens when a neighbor pitches in. 
One day, a neighbor tackled him on her front lawn and held him down, screaming, Joyce, hurry up! I've got him! I quickly left my car running in the middle of the street, ran with collar and lead in hand, saved my neighbor, and placed Oliver in the car. There were a few more escapes and a few more car chases, but this one tops the list. One summer afternoon, the lawn crew arrived to cut my grass and my next-door neighbors simultaneously. Oliver goes into fifth gear when they arrive. Remember the greetings I received at the breeder's home from the adult Britneys? Well, Oliver greets the lawn crew by jumping nearly six feet on my back patio doors. I had an appointment and needed to pay the crew before I left, so I beckoned to one of the guys to come to the back door to be paid. As I opened the door ever so slightly, Oliver pushed through my legs and he was gone. The gate was open. The poor guy, who probably weighed about 130 pounds, took off after him, but Oliver was doing his usual 100-mile dash. The other guy, who was mowing my next-door neighbor's yard at this point, saw the commotion and took off trying to catch Oliver on his upright lawnmower. What a scene. Oliver running down Garfield Lane in between houses, the skinny lawn guy running after him, looking like he was trying to lasso a bronco, three children running down the street shouting, Oliver, come back! The other lawn guy riding down the street on his lawnmower, bobbing up and down the sidewalks, trying to keep up with his worker, who was now two blocks away. By this time, I was in my car with collar and lead, riding up one street and down the next, passing the screaming children and the guy on the lawnmower. Then finally, I saw them. Skinny guy holding Oliver by the neck and walking him back to my house. I drove up, and both dog and lawn guy hopped into the back seat. All that I could do was apologize to the lawn guy for taking up his time. I thanked him and looked at Oliver as he slobbered the guy with affection. As I approached my house, the guy on the upright lawnmower was just rounding the corner. He looked relieved that the dog was captured and his worker was still fit to continue mowing lawns. Seven years later, nothing has changed. Oliver has had six weeks of canine training. He did such a great job in class that the instructor used him as an example to train the other dogs. But those moments were short-lived because when Oliver returned home, it was back to jumping, digging, and never obeying commands. I guess you might say he was born to be wild. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Horror Story, as read by me. To be more than a monster was once one man's dream, a revitalized man who loved coffee and cream. He baked the best quiches, award-winning scones, but spoke in a way that scared folks to their bones. From this predicament would eventually grow Frankenstein's Grunt, Café and Bistro. At the start, he was famous just for being undead, until the owner gained a claim for his monkey bread. The imported Arabicas, organic chais, all roused his patrons like bolts from the sky. Still, not all the walk-ins were ready to see a Frankenstein monster serving them tea. Some shrieked while others turned pale as a ghost. No matter how nice, 
the greetings of the host. And yes, when he said hi, was how it sounded. But their fears of violence were totally unfounded. Frankenstein's grunt was a symbol of the passion this exhumed barista had in him for dashing. The walls of the cage the world put him in, the moment it spotted his recycled skin. So on Frankenstein pressed, serving French pressed for breakfast, building the grunt into one of the best cafes and bistros you could ever try. Have no fear that you hear is just him saying hi. Hello, this is Rich Hosek. I hope you enjoy my Halloween tale, Tricked, as read by me. Harrison Hardigan hated Halloween. He hated the parade of costume brats ringing his doorbell, the proliferation of skeletons and spiders and tombstones in his neighbor's yards, the ubiquity of pumpkin spice-flavored everything everywhere he went. To be honest, that had more to do with Thanksgiving, which he also hated, but the plague of cinnamon, nutmeg, and allspice, it seemed, was starting earlier and earlier every year. Tomorrow was the cursed day. He had considered getting a hotel room or just taking a long drive somewhere else, but he was not going to be driven from his home just because of the commercialized observation of some pagan celebration. No, he would stand his ground. Let those trick-or-treaters come begging for candy and other treats. They'd get nothing from him. And if they were foolish enough to think a trick was an appropriate response, his garden hose was at the ready. Harrison turned out the lights and climbed into his bed. It was a particularly cold late October. But would that stop the sniveling little beggars from traipsing up and down his front steps, their tiny feet thumping across his porch? They would just throw winter coats over their costumes, so only their masks were visible. It made the whole ritual even more ridiculous. A strong wind howled outside his window. Maybe there would be a thunderstorm tomorrow. It wouldn't stop them, he knew, but it might slow them down a bit. He smiled at the prospect of a storm literally dumping cold water on their insipid plans as he closed his eyes, ready for sleep. Oh, Harrison, a female voice whispered in the dark. Why does Halloween bother you so? Harrison's eyes sprung open, searching the dark for the source of the voice. Who's there? A shimmering shape took form at the foot of his bed, a woman who appeared translucent. She was older, a bit heavy, with thin hair flowing loosely over her shoulders. She was wearing an old stained housecoat. Hello, Harrison, she said in a soothing voice. Who are you? he asked. It's me, Beatrice, she replied. Beatrice? Beatrice Kaminsky. Harrison sat up, scrutinizing her diaphanous features. Does it ring a bell? he said. From school, she prompted. He leaned closer and squinted at her. No, sorry. Can you be more specific? Beatrice rolled her eyes in frustration. You took me to the fall harvest dance at Bedford Falls High School. Harrison looked the apparition up and down, trying to connect the woman to his fifty-year-old memories. B, he said with a hint of recognition. You really let yourself go. I'm not here to date you, she said. I'm here to warn you. Warn me? You must mend your ways. You must embrace Halloween in the spirit in which it should be appreciated, as an affirmation of life. Why? Harrison asked. Why? Beatrice asked back. What difference does it make? 
Well, the path you're on will only lead to isolation and unhappiness. But I like being alone, Harrison asserted. I hate people. They're so annoying. If I could afford to buy my neighbors' houses and demolish them, I would. Beatrice appeared flummoxed. Do not dismiss my warning, she admonished. You will only have this one chance to redeem yourself. There will be three spirits who will visit you. Listen to them. Learn from what they show you. Wait a minute, Harrison interrupted. Is this like a Christmas carol thing? What? This sounds a lot like the whole Ebenezer Scrooge story. Three spirits will visit you over three nights, blah, blah, blah. No, this is nothing like that. This is about Halloween, not Christmas. Yes, yes, but aside from that, basically the same thing, right? Beatrice paused. She sighed, then nodded her agreement. Yes, it's basically the same thing. But that doesn't mean you should... Why you? Harrison asked. Excuse me? Beatrice asked back. Well, I haven't seen you in over half a century, he said. As I recall, we broke up after that dance. You were flirting with Kevin Spassky. Isn't there someone more relevant to my life that should be giving me this warning? Beatrice looked behind her as if consulting some committee of ghosts in charge of such things. No, she replied. Well, no one that wanted to come see you. So why did you volunteer? I was bored, Beatrice confessed. And now, so am I, Harrison said. He settled back into bed and closed his eyes. But I haven't finished the warning. The spirits, when they arrive, you must... Listen to what they say, change my fate, yada yada. Good night, he said with an air of finality. Beatrice shrugged and faded away. Harrison awoke the next day with a faint recollection of his encounter with the geriatric version of his high school sweetheart in the back of his mind. He did some chores around his house, then settled down in front of his television with a TV dinner and a beer to watch C-SPAN. They seemed to be the only programming among the hundreds of channels on his cable service that wasn't centered around Halloween. It was around three o'clock when his doorbell rang. Harrison ignored it. Most of the time, after ten seconds or so, they would just give up and go away. But this little goblin rang the bell a second time. And when Harrison ignored that attempt, it rang a third and fourth time. Harrison rose out of his easy chair and shuffled over to the front door. He opened it ready to unleash a tirade about private property. Listen, you little. But there was no one there. He stepped out on his porch and looked up and down the street. But there was no one in sight. He scratched the bald spot on the crown of his head and turned the head back into his house and came face to face with a skeleton standing in his doorway. Not a costume kid in a black bodysuit with bones painted on it. It was a full-on human skeleton, hanging in the air, with a lit cigar clenched in its teeth. What the hell? Harrison exclaimed. The skeleton raised a hand to grip the cigar. Its tip glowed as smoke was drawn into the skull and expelled through the empty eye sockets. Hey, Harrison, shall we get started? Started on what? I was under the impression you got the standard warning last night that I was coming. I'm your first spirit. Ringing any bells? Harrison thought back to the odd experience from the previous night that was hanging onto the edge of his consciousness. That was just a dream, he insisted. Do I look like a dream? the skeleton asked. Well, frankly, yes, Harrison replied. Granted, that's a valid interpretation, the skeleton conceded. But most people think I was more of a bad acid trip. I don't do drugs. Of course not. Well, this is kind of what it would be like. Come on, let's get going. I have big plans later tonight, dancing around the cemetery with some friends. Go where? 
the skeleton reached out with a bony hand and placed it on Harrison's shoulder. Suddenly, they were standing on the sidewalk of a city street, where densely packed bungalows stood shoulder to shoulder, with only a narrow passage between them. Throngs of costumed children ran up and down the sidewalk from door to door, chanting, Trick or treat! to the delight of the grinning homeowners. There was one boy who walked alone. He was dressed as a clown and clearly not happy about it. Harrison realized the street they were on was the one he grew up on, and the boy standing in front of him was himself. He had wanted to dress up as a devil. There was a costume at the Woolworths he had coveted for weeks, and in the end, his mother had decided he was going to be a clown, recycling a costume his older brother had worn years earlier. He trudged up the steps to a nearby house, rang the bell, then held open the pillowcase he was using to collect candy in. A smiling housewife opened the door. Well, hello there, she said. Is there something you wanted to say? Harrison remembered resenting having to utter those vapid words. He never understood that part of the ritual. Reluctantly, he said in a low voice, Trick or treat. A little girl in a princess costume peeked out from behind the woman. The woman dropped a single Hershey's kiss into the boy's sack. What's your name? she asked. Harrison, the boy replied. What kind of name is that? the little girl asked. No, your first name, the woman said. It is my first name, the boy insisted. The girl laughed at him. He has his names backwards. The boy turned and walked away, continued down the sidewalk toward Harrison and the skeleton. That's a cool costume, the boy said to the skeleton. Is he supposed to be able to see us? Harrison asked his bony guide. No, we should be invisible, the skeleton said, scratching his skull with the phalanges. Harrison reached out and poked the boy with his finger, pushing the kid back a few inches. Shouldn't be able to do that either, the skeleton confirmed. Don't worry, kid, Harrison said to his younger self. You'll have the coolest name in school when Star Wars comes out. What's Star Wars? the boy asked. You'll see, Harrison said. The boy sighed and ambled off to the next house. Harrison knew he would visit every home in the neighborhood that night, gathering as much candy as he could. Then, a few months later, after the other kids had depleted their own supplies, he would start selling it off for a nickel apiece at school, and buy himself a disappointing pair of x-ray specs from the back of the comic. Harrison turned to the skeleton. So, what was I supposed to learn from that? He asked. The skeleton shrugged. I don't know, it's one of those you'll note when you see it kind of situations. It doesn't raise any sad memories from your childhood? Any regrets? Lost opportunities? Nope, Harrison replied, unmoved by the experience. Well, I'm sure it'll come to you. He reached out again and placed his bony hand on Harrison's shoulder. Nothing happened. You're not very good at this, Harrison remarked. This has never happened before, the skeleton claimed. Yeah, well, while we're stuck in the 60s, do you mind if I buy some IBM stock? The skeleton tried the opposite hand on Harrison's other shoulder. Again, nothing happened. Maybe you need to say something, too, Harrison suggested. The skeleton took a step back, balled one hand into a solid knot of bones, and struck Harrison square on the jaw. He awoke sitting in his easy chair. Some political analyst was droning on about the Federal Reserve on C-SPAN. It was dark outside. He checked his watch. It was only about four o'clock. He looked out his front window and saw that the reason it was so dark was that black storm clouds filled the sky, lit up occasionally by distant flashes of lightning. Unlike the dream from the previous night, his little daymare was fresh in his mind. He picked up the can of beer he had been drinking and inspected the best buy date. The doorbell rang. What the hell? Harrison exclaimed. 
Despite the oncoming storm, it appeared there were still little beggars hopeful to fill up their sacks with candy before it started to rain in earnest. Harrison didn't wait for the costumed extortionists to ring again. He rose from his chair and strode toward the front door, throwing it open, ready to castigate the unaware little hobgoblins. But the words never made it past his chapped lips. Hanging in the air in front of him was a giant bee. Well, Harrison said, confused, I didn't see this coming. The bee buzzed. Okay, are you part of this whole Christmas Carol Halloween crossover? Or are you an independent random hallucination? He asked. The bee buzzed again. You know, I don't speak bee, so you're going to have to give me something other than just this meaningless buzzing. The bee rose a bit, its wings fluttering madly as it bent its body so that its stinger was pointed directly at Harrison. Hey, watch out with that thing. I'm allergic. The bee stung him right in the middle of his chest. But instead of a sharp pain, followed by a swelling of his entire body and inability to breathe, Harrison found himself at a Halloween costume party. He was dressed as Winnie the Pooh. Next to him was a young woman wearing a sexy bee costume. Why didn't you just show up that way in the first place? I like to do the sting. It's kind of my thing, Bee Girl replied. Whatever. Where are we? Harrison asked, bored and anxious to get through this Dickensian hell he seemed to be stuck in. You don't recognize these people? No, they're all wearing costumes, Harrison replied. Oh, right, Bee Girl replied. She scanned the guests to find someone Harrison might be able to identify. There was a woman wearing a Hogwarts cloak with a Ravenclaw scarf. Certainly you know who that is, Bee Girl said, pointing at the woman. Harrison followed her finger toward the Harry Potter fan. Laura, he said. She works at my office. Well, my old office. I'm retired now. I know, Bee Girl said. If you hadn't taken that early retirement package, you would be at this party right now. I don't think so. I don't do parties. Well, if you were the boss, you kind of would have to be. Boss? Yes. Laura took your job when you left, then was promoted to branch manager the following year. Huh, Harrison said. Because she participates in the company culture, attends branch outings, remembers people's birthdays. Yeah, that sounds like Laura. Nice to see she made manager. She always talked about that, whether you wanted her to or not. Beagle looked at Harrison. Aren't you filled with regret that your dislike for Halloween ultimately led to you not fulfilling your true potential? Harrison shrugged. Not really. I'm not a people person. I was able to parlay that payout they gave me into a fixed annuity. Got a pretty sweet deal. B-Girl sighed, frustrated. Seriously? No lesson learned here at all? Harrison shook his head. He spied a platter of stuffed dates at a nearby table. Ooh, I love those, he said, reaching for the hors d'oeuvres. His hand passed right through them. Great. Now it works the way it's supposed to. You know, you don't deserve this chance to change your life, B-Girl said. Never asked for it, Harrison replied. Are we done here? B-Girl transformed back into a giant flying bee and jammed her stinger into his chest. Harrison awoke in his easy chair. He rubbed at his chest where he could still feel the sting of his most recent visitor. Ah, jeez, whatever happened to the ghosts who were just sheets with two eye holes? He wondered aloud. The doorbell rang. Harrison rolled up out of his chair and shuffled toward the door. Coming, he said. Keep your pants on, or whatever it is you're wearing. He opened the door. Standing on the porch as it started to rain was a man in a Batman costume. Well, not really an official Batman suit. It was obviously some unlicensed ripoff. Harrison Hardigan, he said in an imitation of Christian Bale's version of a superhero. 
I am the spirit of Halloween yet to come. Right, got it, Harrison said. Let me save you some time. No matter what you show me, I'm not going to embrace Halloween. I just don't like it. I don't like the themes, the excuses for kids who extort their neighbors for candy, adults who use it as an opportunity to wear wildly inappropriate or sexualized costumes. I just don't get it. Never will. Don't want to. So, thanks for the effort. But I'm going to go back to my chair and watch C-SPAN. He closed the door on the dime store superhero and turned around to head back to his chair. The doorbell rang again. He opened the door. Listen, really, you can stop with the whole... But there was no one there to talk to. The ghost had disappeared. Harrison leaned out to peek up and down the street, but the spirit of Halloween yet to come had gone. Lightning lit up the horizon, and a clap of thunder rolled in a second later. I'm never drinking your old beer again, Harrison promised himself. Then there was a sound that was wholly unexpected. Boo, said a small voice from below. The shout surprised Harrison. He looked down and saw a small child in a classic ghost costume, simply a sheet with two eye holes cut into it. The old man stumbled backwards, tripping over the area rug at his feet just inside the door, and fell heavily, banging his head on the corner of the small table where he kept his keys and unopened mail. The impact indented his skull deeply and turned his head in such a way as to twist his neck in just the right way to snap his spinal cord, killing him instantly. It took a moment for Harrison to realize what he was looking at. He looked so unnatural with his body facing one way and his head another. But there was his dead body, laying lifeless at his feet. That's what I came here to warn you about, the fake Batman said. Harrison looked over and saw the ghost standing next to him. If you would just let me finish. Yeah, well, I was always stubborn like that. Tell me about it, the ghost Batman said. The young kid in the ghost costume walked tentatively up to Harrison's body. Are you all right, mister? he asked. No, kid, can't you see my head is halfway twisted off? Harrison replied. The child evidently heard him, because he ran out of the house screaming and kept on running down the street until he was out of sight. I didn't think you would be able to hear me, Harrison said to Ghost Batman. You shouldn't have. Things have been wonky all night, though, the ghost explained. Well, what's next? You know, the afterlife. It's not too bad if you can find something to do. Any recommendations? Harrison asked. Well, there is an opening if you're interested. Our ghost of Halloween present quit tonight. Hi, this is Bill Rausch, and this is a story entitled Androphobia, as read by me. I was playing out in the woods with my friend. Mama always warned us not to get too far away. So we usually played down by the stream. It was a cool, crisp fall day. The leaves were turning orange and red, aspens flashing yellow everywhere. Then, suddenly, my buddy heard it. What? What was that? We turned our heads, straining to hear. I didn't, I didn't hear anything. Probably your imagination again, I scoffed. But then, then we heard it again. Both of us this time. But now, oh, now there were heavy footsteps. And they were running toward us. 
Look over there. He nodded his head towards the noise. I strained my eyes to see it. Oh, crap. In the thick undergrowth, I saw a strange-looking man. Run! I shouted as we turned and hightailed it out of there. Have some... I heard him behind us when he got snagged up in the briars. We were a lot younger than him and left him in our dust. A few minutes later, we were home and out of breath. Hearts pounding, but but safe. Mom rushed out to meet us. Where the heck have you two been? She was more than worried. She was upset. She tried to hide it, but I saw her anxiety. Mom, Mom, we were playing down by the stream like we always do. But then, but then we heard, heard him and we took off. Okay, okay, slow down, sweetie. You heard who? Hikers, or, or, or maybe campers. There was, there was a whole bunch of them. My, my buddy glared at me as if to say, really? Sometimes I sort of, you know, make things up. Well, okay, Mom. It was just one man, dressed kind of weird. When he saw us, he started chasing us, so we ran away. <laughs> it, was, it was funny when he got all snagged up in those briars. Hikers are pretty dumb. When I said that, Mom got very quiet. She told my buddy to go home, that he was safe now. After he was gone, she looked down at me. Her concern was obvious. Sweetie, this is nothing to laugh about. Your father warned me that this day would come. I just didn't think it would be this soon. Uh, what, what day, Mom? She took a moment to collect her thoughts. Okay, after I met your father, he moved me way out here. I was pretty reluctant and really didn't want to, but he said we needed to get away from, from all that. Then mom stopped, the words caught in her throat. Your father, your father could be very strong-willed, but really, he just wanted to keep both of us safe. Safe? Safe from what, mom? I was puzzled. From them, sweetie. People, people like you saw today. Then I saw a tear in her eye, not sure what to say. But mom, that man was probably just out camping or, 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 or hiking. Honey, honey, let me finish. Right after you were born, the same thing happened to your father. He was pretty sure that we were safe living way out here like this. So he'd get up early and go for walks through the woods. But that morning, they saw him and started chasing him, just like you today. They even had dogs. And their barking woke me and you as, as we were sleeping back here, safe and sound. Mom stopped. She had a distant stare in her eyes as she looked toward the stream where I had been playing. I didn't know what to say. Sweetie, listen to me very careful now. That man today, he wasn't camping or hiking. Men like him, strangers, they like to sneak around in the woods. After Mom said that, I started to understand. Mom, not was he going to hurt me? Not yet, sweetie, not yet. 
but next year he'll try again when you have antlers. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Spinning the Globe, as read by me. Our parents always filled our house with traditions, from first-day school photos to birthday cake wishings. Easter egg hunting, Super Bowl gatherings, July 4th bunting, Dad's New Year's toast blatherings. Among all of it, Christmas came with the most, an elf on the shelf those chestnuts to roast, stockings and trimmings, caroling, punch. For my sister with a Christmas Eve birthday, a brunch. They were all great, but each year the best was what kicked off our annual Red and Green Fest. It took place the night we put up the tree, then with tinsel and lights, made it bright and shiny. We added the ornaments, bells, candy canes, wooden nutcrackers, cool metal trains. Then those gorgeous glass globes, too many to count. From the trunk to the star, an amazing amount. Mom loved them so, they were her cherished prize. It was tradition just seeing how they glimmered her eyes. All but one, every year, the last left in the box. Spotting it, mom's eyes and smile thinned like a fox. We all sat to watch, dad included. Knowing Christmas couldn't start, till this moment concluded. Mom removing the final gorgeous glass globe and carefully lifting it beside her ear lobe. She made like her fave, Doc Gooden on the hill, kicked her leg high and fired a pill. In our open brick hearth, where shattering mixed with flames, made us cheer as if Doc just tossed a perfect game. Now Christmas time's back to us, exclaimed my mother. And we've broken one globe, let us not break another. In this family, everyone's a bit different from the rest. But no one in our house disputes which tradition's best. Hi, this is Mike Archer. This is an excerpt from my short story collection, Living with Humans. It's called The Woodcarver, as read by me. Joe Bruno and his wife Maria were just moving into the quiet neighborhood in Santa Fe. A few days earlier, Matt Dawkins, their next-door neighbor, noticed a couple of workers renovating and expanding a backyard shed. Matt thought Joe and his wife looked to be in their 70s and probably moved to New Mexico to enjoy the great weather and scenery in their retirement years. Matt and his wife Jane had waved to the couple as the movers were carrying furniture into the house on a sunny Saturday. They planned to go over and welcome them to the neighborhood once the movers were gone. Matt and Jane moved to Santa Fe from Brooklyn, New York, when Matt got an offer from a law firm. He and Jane, a teacher, thought it would be an adventure and a way to sample a different lifestyle. Their kids, 8-year-old Patrick and their daughter, 5-year-old Taylor, were disappointed the former owners moved. They had two kids about Patrick and Taylor's ages who they played with all the time. As Patrick watched Joe supervise the movers, he said, Dad, that man looks old. I don't see any kids. He looks like Grandpa. Matt smiled, No, Patrick, 
I don't think they have kids your age, but I'm sure they're nice people. Maybe they have grandkids who'll come and visit. Patrick was skeptical. I bet they won't have their own scooters. Matt did notice several wooden crates the movers took back to the shed. It had been enlarged. There was new siding, a new roof, and electricity was installed. Joe followed them, and Matt could hear him telling the movers to be careful with the crates. Later in the afternoon, when the movers were gone, Matt, Jane, and the kids went over to say hello. Jane made a chicken pot pie and some cookies, and they rang the bell. As Joe opened the door, Matt said, Hi, we're your next-door neighbors. We hope we're not intruding. We wanted to welcome you to the neighborhood. I'm Matt Dawkins. This is my wife, Jane, and this is Patrick and Taylor. Jane held out the dinner and the cookies and said, We thought you might be too busy to think about dinner. Joe was impressed. This is great. I'm Joe Bruno. Maria, come out here. The neighbors are here and they brought us dinner. Thanks so much. Maria came out of the kitchen. Oh, come in. This is so nice of you. There were boxes spread out in the living room and piled on the kitchen table. Jane said, we don't want to stay. We know you're busy. Matt asked, where are you from, Joe? We're from Philadelphia. We couldn't take the winters anymore. Matt said, it was great meeting you. And again, if there's anything we can do, just let us know. As they went out the door, Jane noticed the picture of the little boy on the mantel. The Dawkins didn't see much of the Brunos over the next several weeks, They did notice Joe spent most days in the backyard shed that had been turned into a workshop. There were pieces of lumber and even small tree trunks neatly stacked next to it. Patrick could see Joe through the small window when he came home from school. His curiosity finally got the best of him one day, and he walked over to the workshop. He knew his mother wouldn't want him bothering Joe. He tried to peek in the window without being noticed, but Joe looked up and saw him. Patrick took a step back and thought Joe might get angry. He started to turn to go back home when Joe opened the door. It's Patrick, right? Joe could be a little imposing to a kid. He was only five foot nine, but he was stocky with muscular forearms. He had a broad face framed with silver-rimmed glasses that matched his white hair. His voice was deep. Patrick felt a little intimidated and was regretting his decision to venture into Joe's yard. Joe held the door open. Would you like to come in? Patrick decided to step inside. It was not what he expected. It was like nothing he had ever seen before. There were shelves lining the three walls from about a foot above the floor to a foot below the ceiling. There were dozens of hand-carved wooden figures, children, animals, birds, football and baseball players, trains, boats, and small planes. Works in progress were scattered on the workbench in the center of the shop. Carving tools were scattered on top of the bench, knives, chisels, files, and an electric table saw. Wood and more tools were stored on a shelf under the workbench. Patrick could smell the wood. His eyes were popping. Wow, did you make all these things? Is this what you do all day? Joe smiled. Well, it's my hobby. I do give some away to people I like. Would you like to pick one out? Patrick scanned the shelves. It was almost too much to take in. He stopped at the lion with the full mane and its mouth open in a roar. Can I have the lion, he asked. Joe took it off the middle shelf and handed it to Patrick. It's yours. How about your sister? Patrick said she likes dogs. We have a golden retriever named Lucky. Joe reached to the top shelf and took down a figure of a little girl petting her dog. Maybe she'd like this one, he said, handing it to Patrick. Yeah, the dog even looks like Lucky. Patrick didn't want to overstay his welcome. 
Thanks, Mr. Bruno. My mom is going to be looking for me. Joe stood at the door. Okay, tell your parents I said hello and come over any time. Patrick noticed the picture of the little boy on the shelf behind Joe's head. It was the same boy Jane saw on the Bruno's mantle. Patrick rushed in the back door to the kitchen where Jane was making dinner. Mom, look what Mr. Bruno gave me. You should see inside his workshop. There's so many wood statues all over the walls. He let me pick out the lion and gave me this girl and the dog for Taylor. Jane was a little concerned. Were you over there bothering Mr. Bruno? You should have asked before going over to his backyard. Patrick tried to explain. I was just looking in the window, and he saw me and asked me to come inside the workshop. He was really friendly. Jane didn't want to overreact. Okay, but next time you ask me about going over there and disturbing Mr. Bruno. Matt came home a short time later, and Patrick told him all about his visit to Mr. Bruno over dinner. Dad, there were so many wood statues all over the walls. Matt said, that was very nice of Mr. Bruno, but I don't want you bothering him or accepting any more gifts. One is enough. When dinner was over, the kids went to the family room to watch television. Matt and Jane were cleaning up the dishes. As he wiped off the counter, Matt said, I should go over there and thank Joe for being so nice to Patrick. I haven't seen much of him since they moved in. Jane thought for a second. I haven't seen Maria either. When she returned the dishes I brought over for dinner, she left them on the front porch with a thank you note. She dropped them off when she knew I'd be at school. Maybe they're just shy or like to keep them themselves. Later, Matt saw the light on in Joe's workshop and walked over to thank him. Like Patrick, Matt was amazed by all the wooden figures. Joe, this is quite a collection. Do you sell these? Oh, no, it's just a hobby. I give them away at toy drives, kids in homeless shelters, nursery schools. I try to make them unique. Every kid should have a special toy that no one else has. Matt wondered if Joe had children or grandchildren of his own. He then noticed the picture of the little boy on the shelf behind Joe. Who's that little guy? Is he your grandson? Joe turned around slightly. That's our son. He died many years ago. There was a distinct change in Joe's expression. A sadness seemed to come over him. Matt immediately regretted asking. He felt as if he was prying. Oh, Joe, I'm sorry. Joe wanted to change the subject. Uh, thank you. Listen, Patrick is welcome here any time. I love the company. Matt turned toward the door. That's very nice of you. We just don't want him to be a bother. Joe shook his head and said, he's no bother. When Matt returned home, Jane was upstairs getting the kids ready for bed. He went up to read a story. They each had their own room, but they did the bedtime story in Taylor's room. She had the figure of the little girl with the dog on her nightstand. Daddy, doesn't the dog look like Lucky? Matt smiled, and the girl looks just like you. After the story, Matt tugged Taylor in and walked Patrick across the hall to his room. Dad, did you see Mr. Bruno's workshop? Matt pulled the covers up on Patrick. Yes, I did. It's a really cool collection. Patrick asked, Is it okay if I go over again? Mr. Bruno said I could. Okay, but don't be a pest and ask Mom before you go over. I will. Good night, Dad. Matt bent down and kissed Patrick's forehead. Good night, son. When Matt came downstairs, Jane was sitting at the kitchen table going over her class's test papers. Matt said, Our neighbor seems like a nice guy and he's quite a woodcarver, but I think I made him uncomfortable asking about a picture of a little boy on one of the shelves. I asked if he was his grandson. 
he suddenly got a sad look on his face and said the boy was his son who had died a long time ago. Jane remembered. I saw a picture of a little boy on their mantle when we went over with the dinner. I thought it was a little strange that the picture was one of the first things they put up in the middle of all the boxes and unpacking. I wonder what happened and if they had any other children. Matt said, well, I know he has a soft spot for kids. He gives all those figures away to toy drives, kids in homeless shelters, and even nursery schools. Really, Jane was impressed. Maybe Santa Claus has moved into the neighborhood. Hmm, did Santa Claus move into the neighborhood? Well, you'll have to read Mike Archer's book, Living with Humans, to find out. Check the episode description for more info. And if you like the show, tell a friend about it. Thanks for sticking around to the end of our second annual Reader's Roundup, and we'll see you soon in Season 3.